Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Wednesday morning, January 20, uh, 31st, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Morning. Morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Today is the last day of January. Tomorrow is the first day of the dumb month. The dumb month, dumb. Josh, is the month that has an extra R. Hmm. Too many R's, too few days. See, this is Josh's first February with us. February. Right? February. February with 29 days. How stupid is a month that doesn't have the same days every year? <laughs> right? Little, and it's got an extra R. It's just a dumb month. little calendar so, correction. So, so, so tomorrow will begin the dumb month, but it's the shortest month of all. Um, so, you know, and, and I've always looked at January and February as kind of hibernation months. I mean, I don't do nothing. I can't afford to do nothing, but you kind of, um, you, you try to demonstrate a little resolve. You know, you spent more money than you should have during the holidays. I mean, in my world and Rez world is college football. And then it gets into the holiday season. And then it gets into looking at your bank account saying, damn, did it again. Did it again. Um, swore I wasn't spending that much money and I wasn't going to do all these things. Did it again. Um, and then you get to January and February. I can't speak for Rev or, or Josh, but I put myself on restriction in January and February. <laughs> I don't buy that $8 bag of M&Ms. I live on restriction. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I can relate to that. <laughs> we all do it. 212 What did I say yesterday? Two, $219 yeah. a week yeah. extra to live. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're not enjoying the, uh, the luxuries of life. Um, there's a lot to talk about today. We'll do some smart boy politics. I wonder if this is a phenomenon. Before you move on from the uh, riveting calendar and month talk. Dumb month. Yeah. Um, this is interesting. I have had several people in my feeds that are unrelated people, wouldn't probably see each other's feeds, but I have them commenting about how long of a month this particular January seemed to be. What about that is? I don't know. And it, it just seemed interesting. And I, I guess I've, I'm thinking back, trying to remember New Year. New Year's Day, New Year's Eve, or whatever, and it does seem like it, it was quite a like while a ago. Pretty good while ago, but, but but I mean, different. You know, people like you know from high school in Ohio, and people that I know in South Carolina, both are commenting about how long the month of January seemed this year. I just find that kind of interesting. It's Trump's fault. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, everything is. It's not. <laughs> it's Trump's fault. Um, before we get to some of the less important, and I'm, I told Josh this morning. It seems to me that some of these cases against Donald Trump are beginning to unravel, and I'm not sure we need the cases to unravel. <laughs> really? I'm serious. I think we need the cases to be, you know, let's put him in prison, let's put him in jail, let's get him off the ballot. I think that's his best chance of winning if he becomes a quasi-martyr, you know, over the next nine months or so. But um, we, we talked last week and the week before about some of the Sarbanes-Oxley interpretation in the Fisher case of the Supreme Court will make a decision about that um and then we got to take a load off Fani and some of the problems that are happening she got a bit of a break yesterday i think people are making too much of the break she got by settling um the divorce court uh the divorce hearing or divorce proceeding of her um of obo who we believe um well i mean not, we don't believe anything this is it's alleged that they're having an extramarital affair now in in fairness to um to nathan wade I mean, he and his wife were not together. They were still legally married, but I don't think they were They were together. I don't have any interest in that. I mean, I really don't. Um, my primary interest is, is he qualified to do the job? Did he get the job because he is um, her lover and paid in excess of, I think I said yesterday, 656. Uh, we've tallied, and it's actually over 700 
um, $1,000 since retaining him in late 2021, did she personally benefit from some of the uh, some of the trips they took together? I mean, I don't know how you say, you know, Nathan Way took this money and did this with it. I mean, in my world, I silo. I mean, I'm bad about siloing. I get a little farm check, and I do this with a farm check. I get a little passive income from a rental property, and I do this with that passive income uh, from a rental property. I cash flow my life with the salary that I receive here. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there are little bits of money here and a, and a little bit of money over there. My life has never been, you know, a paycheck every two weeks, exactly the same amount. And um, and these bills come in the door and you try to uh, service the debt. Uh, my world's been a little bit different and I've always siloed. I got this piece of money coming in, you know, in, in February, uh, the dumb month. I've got another little piece of money I think's coming in. And uh, did we sell that little piece of property? Did we? Anyway, um, that's uh, that's more than you care here to know. But but I want to know, and I think we'll find out, uh, the Georgia Senate has appointed a nine-member committee, six Republicans, three Democrats, that are going to get to the bottom of it. And the House Oversight, led by Jim Jordan, are going to investigate whether or not there's some um, sh- some shenanigans um, going on involving Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade and exactly where the money went, why she why she hired this guy who had very little RICO experience. And it's kind of interesting. Normally, Andy McCarthy wrote an article. I'll try to find the article, and we'll go over that. First thing we need to do is congratulate our Gamecocks, right? Somebody put on Twitter Definitely. this morning, um, and it was a little bit insulting to me. I mean, I don't think they meant to be insulting, but it was like, I mean, I know them to be a Tiger fan, and they said, I bet it's the first time in that program's history they've ever been beat two top 10 teams in, a, in the same week. And I'm going, how many teams in America have beat two top 10 teams in the same week? That would be an interesting, I mean, I'm sure somebody has done it, but it don't happen much mm-hmm. when you go, uh, a, you know, a week, I think Tuesday to Tuesday, and the Gamecocks upset Kentucky at home, and then number five, Tennessee on the road, Um I put something on Facebook last night because um, when they hired Lamont Paris, it seemed like a settling hire. It just seemed like Ray couldn't get his guy, so let's settle for this, um, you know, this, this kind of up-and-comer. He coached under such-and-such such at Ohio State. He turned, you know, Western Kentucky around. I don't think that's the exact school, but some of the – one of these mid-major programs he turned around. And I remember thinking to myself, in fact, I said – you know, um, is Fred G coming with him? What do you mean, Fred G coming with <laughs> I him? I remember that. Well, I mean, Lamont took the job. Is Fred G going to be, <laughs> you know, Gamecock fan extraordinaire? And I didn't give Lamont Paris the, the proper due. He's done a good job. I mean, he's really done an excellent yeah, job. Right. I believe the hire that most aren't discussing or talking about is Kerry Rich. I mean, Kerry Rich would be, they don't call it this, but he would be, the 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 Gamecock version of director of player personnel and Kerry Rich has extensive experience in the AAU. I mean, he understands the shoe deals. <laughs> Here's what I'm trying to say, guys. He understands the money in college basketball and high school basketball and who gets what and how it funnels to this kid or that kid or another kid. And I would imagine in Kerry Rich's world, somebody I'm just making up a hypothetical scenario. Bad boy could do a better job than I explaining this. Um, but I believe that Kerry Rich understands we can get this kid if we can get this much money. We can get this kid if we can get this shoe deal done or this NIL deal um, done. I'm not saying Lamont is a good coach, but it seems to me that behind the scenes, um, 
they they executed on the NIL and transfer portal probably better than the football team did. And they put together a real solid team, not a great team. Um, the one thing they've done, Rev, and I think Lamont deserves a lot of credit, uh, Fred G. Son deserves a lot of credit with this, in that they have found a bunch of role players that are willing to accept their roles. I mean, they don't have McDonald's All-Americans like Kentucky and and, uh, and Duke or North Carolina, uh, but they've got some serviceable players who understand their role and they bought into it. I mean, they, they've really bought into it. And Lamont Paris believes in the three-point shot. I mean, in today's basketball, you got to make threes or you're not going to win, period. I mean, if you don't make threes, you just ain't winning consistently in college basketball, and they do a pretty good job of shooting the three. Now, when they struggle, they don't make the three. You know, when, when they have their issues at Alabama second half, couldn't make a three, got their doors blown off. But they've been competitive other than that half. I mean, they've been highly competitive. And here's the weird phenomenon of college basketball to the way it's set up to make the, the tournament and become a seed. The weird phenomenon is I'm at, I'm in Litchfield Saturday night watching Clemson play Duke. And for 15 minutes, my wife thought I had dementia. <laughs> she says, you know, that's Clemson you cheering for. <laughs> that, the team with the orange jersey, old man. <laughs> I mean, you've not lost to your faculties that quickly. I said, no, but the net rankings, you know, that's a quad one loss and a quad one win and, and a higher net rating. And it kind of makes strange bedfellows yeah. in this particular um, situation. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm watching Clemson and Duke and I'm going like, no, no. I mean, you can't keep it this close because they're going to get a call at the end. And we need Clemson to win because that helps the likelihood that we make uh, the postseason. And it's funny that you're thinking it through and, and, and pulling for Clemson because of that. I mean, that, that's just, that's funny to me. Well, I mean, if you're a smart Clemson fan, and you know, many are, some are, not many, uh, some are, um, you got to pull over the Gamecocks last night. I mean, that's yeah. a quad one yeah. win. I mean, that, yeah, quality that, wins. I think and... South Carolina was 48-ish in the net, uh, a big win against uh, Tennessee on the road. I mean, that's a quad one road win. That's a big win, top five program in their place. If they were to come back Saturday, I think they're in Athens Saturday, I mean, if, if they win that game, I mean, they're top 25 net. Clemson has a win over South Carolina. I mean, the better the Gamecocks do, the more, you know, the more it improves the net rankings of, of Clemson. Mm -hmm. And I think the Gamecocks are to a place now. I mean, I'm convinced they're better than I ever imagined they would be. Now, now I'm a football bozo. I'll make no bones about it. It kind of disgusts me that our fan base has taken the basketball as easily. Wow, we got Don Staley and Lamont. I mean, we're winning basketball games one after the other. Yuck, is, is what I say. <laughs> um, but, but having said that, the SCC basketball tournament has this weird setup, Josh. I'm sure you knew about this. If you're in the top four seeds, you get this kind of a double bye. I mean, you, you kind of make it to the semifinals just by showing up. And I think the Gamecocks, I mean, there's no way you could have said two weeks ago, this team needs to start thinking about, you know, a top four seed in the SEC tournament to get one of those double buys. I don't know if that's what it's called, but that's what it is. Um, I think now, okay, you start thinking about it. You got to win over Kentucky. At home, got to win over Tennessee on the road. You got some tough games ahead, but the schedule's a bit favorable from here to the finish line. And if they're as good as they appear to be, why can't they go 12 and 6 in the SEC, 13 and 5 in the SEC, and position themselves as a top four seed and get that, um, get that double bye in that funky SEC basketball tournament that hardly anybody cares about? The ACC basketball tournament, different animal. But that's. But that's prestige. The ACC basketball tournament's a big, big deal 
the SEC basketball tournament. It's a big deal, but it's just not as um traditionally intense as um as Tobacco Road. And if you're on Tobacco Road, you better get a call, right, Clemson? If you're on Tobacco Road and you keep it close, <laughs> you ain't getting a call at the end of the game. So I had a good weekend, bad week in basketball. Bad week, Duke beats Clemson with a bogus call. Good week, South Carolina goes to Tennessee and upsets Dr. Will Bolts, Tennessee uh, <laughs> Volunteers. He was rocking the sweater vest. He was. Uh, yesterday. Thought about he was it rocking the sweater vest um, today. And I did put on Facebook, I found an old picture of Lamont Sanford and the Sanford and Son junk truck. Remember that junk truck that they uh, – My wife well, asked me last night, she, she said, I don't, I don't get the Sanford and Son. What's that for? I said, well, the Gamecocks beat the Volunteers in basketball. I still don't get it. Lamont. Yeah, that's what, that's what I said. Fred G. Sanford's son was Lamont Sanford. And and once <laughs> like, again, oh, and they okay. had this old junk truck. And all I said is, better get in the bandwagon. You know, you better get on the bandwagon. Better get in. We're going somewhere now. So um, anyway, a little bit of sarcastic humor. Imagine imagine that. Um, the funniest Fred G. Sanford. God, he had so many funny episodes. But there was a guy selling Whopper Choppers. And he knocks on Fred's door. This is back in the day, a door-to-door salesman. And he and he almost just knocks Fred down with his enthusiastic energy and says, I'm such and such. And he's got this um this suede suit on back in the 70s. I'm such and such. And today's your lucky day. I am here to change your life forever by offering you a chance to purchase. And he flips over this briefcase, the Whopper Chopper. And he starts shredding and all this stuff. And he, Fred said... My name is Fred G. Sanford, and the G stand for get the hell out of my house because <laughs> he had, he'd kind of forced himself in his house, you know, and flipped that briefcase over. My name, my name is Fred G. Sanford, and the G stands for get the hell out of my house. 843 661 Better get in, y'all. Lamont's going places. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Um I'm sorry. Uh, I was going to say, are, are we uh, we done with the sports We're now? We're done with the We're sports. Yeah. Uh, Gamecocks pulling for Tigers and Tigers pulling for Gamecocks. <laughs> Imagine that. That's funny. And, and in all honesty, Quality wins, the smart thing to do yeah. if you're a Clemson fan is to pull for South Carolina's basketball team. The smart thing to do if you're a Gamecock fan is to pull for the Clemson basketball team. It's a better loss and a better win. The higher those two teams or the better those two teams do in the net ranking, the more likely it is they both make the tournament, the more likely it is they get a um an advantageous seed. So yeah, we're through with um we're through with basketball. We're through with Whopper Choppers. We're through with Sanford and Son. Um, <laughs> you said your wife didn't understand my sarcasm yesterday. Yeah, that was funny. She asked me l- last night. I don't I don't get that uh, Sanford and Son post. What's that about? I said, well, the Gamecocks beat the Volunteers. Okay, what does that have to do with that? I said, what is our coach's first name? Lamont. I said, you remember Lamont? No, she goes, oh, okay, sure or, do. Or you could call him Big Dummy. <laughs> That's right. Oh, yeah. He's called him Big Dummy. Yeah. What's the Big Dummy done now? So, I hear that music right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Josh, you know the show we're talking about? I mean, I'm sure you don't. Sanford and Son? Uh, nope. I mean, it would have been a comedy classic. I mean, it really would have. It would have been, uh, I mean, it, it's a phenomenal. Red Fox was a stand-up comedian. That'd be kind of interesting. Was Red Fox one of the first stand-up comedians because he's kind of um, raunchy in stand-up comedy. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was always very very, um, very profane, very aggressive in his stand-up routines, but they kind of mainstreamed him or mainstreamed him and put him as a central figure in a, in a, um, in a sitcom. 
and it was to me it's still a um a treasure of my youth and <laughs> it's I, a childhood classic. It's, it's a classic it's a classic no, no doubt about it but since we are done with uh sanford and son and sports this morning you've been talking about something the last few days that's interesting to me and i don't quite know if i wrap my brain around the subject matter totally the way you intend so i'll bring it up again transfer of value okay when, we, when you say that, if you don't mind, define that, and then let's continue the discussion. Well, it seems to me, and for every policy initiative or policy stance that administration takes, you and I don't get as much into this, but there's always an academic understanding. I mean, th- th- there are think tanks out there that say this is good policy, that's good policy. How, why is it good policy? How do we measure policy? Because Rev likes it. Or Ken likes it, or Josh doesn't like it. Well, I mean, that's pretty shallow, right? I mean, wouldn't we all agree to that? I mean, you know, the policy sounds like it it makes sense. So Josh says, well, that's great policy. Why? Because you like it? You don't like it means it's bad policy? It's, that's, that's absurd. So some of these think tanks and some of these um, data gatherers and analytics folks begin to try and analyze and evaluate this policy and that policy and another policy and I read a story a couple of days back about the Koch brothers and their support of Nikki Haley. And their support of Nikki Haley, and they've got this huge political action committee called Americans for Prosperity. AFP is the acronym. That's the lingo inside uh, baseball. So AFP is funding Haley to the tune of about 75 or $80 million. I mean, it's a big, uh, big part of their expenditures. They're beginning to draw back some of the funding and spend more in some of these Senate races because they believe Trump's going to be the, the nominee. I mean, they, I don't want to say wasted all the money they can waste, but Haley was not as stringent or not as public about her pronouncements regarding the border. I mean, Trump says build a wall, close the border. I mean, the Koch brothers don't like that. I mean, they're conservative in nature, but they don't like that build a wall. And the reason they don't like build a wall is their businesses are very labor-intensive. And the majority of their labor, I mean, they've got engineers and they've got CEOs and they've got junior vice presidents. Of course, they got layers of management, but a lot of the profit in their business is what they have to pay the rank and file worker in in, in the farming sector, in industry, in construction, in in some of these places that unskilled labor um, is is kind of um, critical. I mean, it's very critical. So some of the academics got together and talked about the Coke businesses. I mean, it's multi-billion dollar industries. And I mean, some are household names, some aren't. Uh, they own all of some of these businesses, their majority shareholder, and some of these others, but they're heavily invested in labor-intensive businesses. And the value of transfer or the transfer of value, Rev, is when, I mean, let, let's use, let's, let's just take a job, give me farming. I mean, let's say they're farm hands. In my day, it would have been called, you know, just a um, somebody who does manual labor. That, that would be a better and brought manual laborer in whatever he's doing or she's doing, maybe industry, maybe construction, maybe farming, whatever, manual laborer. So if that manual labor has a value, and let's say there the economy needs 10 million manual laborers, I mean, that's the perfect number, and there are 10 million Americans willing to do that manual labor. I mean, in theory, that, that's the perfect value of, of work. You know, 10 million people are needed, 10 million people are willing, so there's kind of a, um, the, the, the value of that work is about as free market-based as you can get. It's about as good 
uh, a model as can exist. But all of a sudden, there aren't 10 million people willing to do that work. There are 15 million people willing to do that work because the border allowed 5 million unskilled laborers who were willing to come from Nicaragua, uh, Ecuador, uh, Costa Rica, Mexico, uh, and do the work cheaper. So all of a sudden, you've transferred the value of that work to people who shouldn't be here. And that's why the Koch brothers are very supportive. I mean, they, the Koch brothers, well, I mean, one's dead. The Koch brothers won't come out and say, hey, I'm an open borders guy. You know, I'm for um, keeping a porous southern border. I don't like Trump because Trump wants to build a wall. I mean, they're not going to say it that, that directly, but that's their motivation. And Trump has been the most aggressive Republican in my lifetime of making the border a priority and securing the border. And when Biden says, well, I'm doing all I can, no, Biden's not. Biden took about 13 or 14 executive decisions made by the former president and rescinded on day one, catch and release, uh, some of the other. Um, I mean, Biden's probably an open border Democrat. The Koch brothers are open border um, Republicans. The reason they're both open borders, Biden believes at some point in time, you can't send all these people back and the majority will register to vote and they'll vote Democrat. I mean, that, that's kind of their theory. That's why Democrats, I mean, they, they've historically won the minority vote. There are, what, 5 million more minorities in America today than there were when Biden got sworn in as president. Biden believes that he wins that vote 70-30. So that's his political interest. The Koch brothers are, are the ones that want to transfer the value of that work. So, so yeah, you can't say this is good policy, this is bad policy, just because Josh likes it again, doesn't just because Rev doesn't like it again does. I mean, that, that, that may be a good starting point, but you got to go a little deeper than that. And some of these academics and think tanks say, okay, the Trump administration stood here on, on the border. The Biden administration stands here on the border. The Koch brothers are giving enormous amounts of money to people who seem to be less committed to securing the border. Why? What is the Koch brothers' best interest? Because they're not spending money for nothing. People don't become billionaires making dumb decision after dumb decision after dumb decision. Like them or not, they're bright people. I mean, the, the companies, the enterprises, think tanks, American for Prosperity, it's run by smart people. You may find them terrible for America. You may disagree with everything they do, but don't call them dumb. I mean, they know what they're doing. And I think the Koch brothers are the classic example of why open borders are in their best interest I don't say that, I mean, I don't know how patriotic the Koch brother is. I don't know how patriotic Americans for Prosperity is. I mean, I want an agenda, and I've said this over and over and over. I want an agenda that's good and prospers the American worker, the American family, and the American way of life. And open borders do not prosper the American worker because you transfer the value of that unskilled laborer to another un-American, non-American, and that's just, to me, that's anti-America first, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, if you really look at what the Democrats are doing today, that is about as anti-America first as anything, it's allowing all these people to come into this country willing to work much cheaper than Americans are and send some of the money back home, take the money back home. I don't have any idea. Forget the terrorists and the, and the criminals. I mean, we know that's happening. We know the that there are criminal components coming into our country. We know 
that there are people on the terrorist watch list that have made their way into the country. Forget that. But that's dangerous enough. I'm talking about transferring the value of of an American citizen's work from an American citizen to someone who is not. I mean, to me, that's unpatriotic and Mm anti-American. Take a break. Back in a few. You know, one of the great quandaries the economy finds itself in is the compensation of unskilled labor. Um, I, I, one of the things I'm proud to say, you know, if I ran for office, it would obviously populist to the extreme. But I would get on the stump and say, and I'm not taking about what, what should a farmer, what should a farmhand make? What should a construction worker make? What should a landscaper make? What should... You know, so I don't. I don't have any. I mean, I, I'm not smart enough to figure out exactly what these jobs should pay. But I do know this: when you supply an economy with an overabundance, with an overabundance of unskilled laborers, and and you add inflation like never before, you create this angst. I mean, that's really a lot of the driver in the working class sentiment toward Trump. They believe Trump is one of their fighters, one of their warriors. Um, they, they don't understand the transfer of value. They don't understand uh, macroeconomic stimulus. They don't understand the Fed and quantitative easing. Oh, but they're too busy working and raising their families as they should be. They shouldn't sit down at night and try to understand quantitative easing or Fed rates and overnight windows and, you know, the transfer of value and what the Koch brothers are doing or not. But they're a victim of it. Oh, but they're an absolute victim of our economy having a distorted and manipulated number of unskilled laborers combined with costed about 220 or $30 a week more to live today than it did. That's where the rubber hits the road. I mean, that's where the voter senses uh, this anxiety. So it's not that businesses aren't paying employees enough. I mean, I question the work ethic. I mean, it's easy to question Americans' work ethic. Pew has done uh, kind of a socioeconomic evaluation of the worker in America. And the greatest generation, work was a big deal. The baby boomers, work was a big deal. As we progress to younger people, work ethic is just not as important. I mean, it's life balance. It's lattes. It's, I'm not saying they're bad people. Maybe they've got it figured out better than we do. But, but we don't celebrate work ethic like we once did. So it's kind of the perfect storm. If, if a young American is being told that work can't be as important to you as it was to your dad and granddad, and and we're supplying an overabundance of workers who will do a job cheaper, it, it's kind of the perfect storm. Let's go to the phone. Sam in Cross Hill, good morning. Uh, good morning, fellas. Uh, yes, this is an interesting discussion, Ken, uh, as the, the transfer of value and measuring of the value of uh, one's labor. If we had a pure true free market i think the marketplace would take care of that but don't you think that uh, it'll be virtually impossible to measure that where where we've got a government that distorts this marketplace and this value system where the government makes the welfare payments and pays people not to work um the the way i'm hearing you talk right now uh ken you you would make a good union boss in south carolina don't you think? Well, but it, th- th- there's some uh, truth to that. I mean, it, uh, populists find themselves very often defending the rights of workers. No doubt about it. Thank you, Sam. Right. Well, just, Are you still there? Yeah, but I, I just, I just been thinking about this. It's an interesting discussion, and uh, I just feel like our our, our government 
uh, distorts this labor marketplace too and affects it a, a, a great deal. So no, anyway, no, no doubt about it. And that. thank you. And I don't know how you fix that. I mean, we're paying people too much to not work and we, we might be paying people not enough to work, but it's not, I mean, I, I want to put myself in the shoes of a business owner. I mean, what, what is a fair margin? A guy running a $10 million a year business. I mean, this is in Russia, right? I mean, he's trying to keep all the money he can while being fair to his employees. I mean, I've done it all my life. I mean, that, that's kind of the magic potion. Where can I be most profitable and keep good employees? Some CEOs get it right, some don't. Some business owners get it right, some don't. But business owners are victims now of this hyperinflation. So when Josh goes to the ownership community broadcast and says, look, man, I can't make it on this salary. And the business owner says, I can't pay anymore, Josh. Josh is concerned about what things cost. The business owner is concerned about profitability within the business. So that, but, but, but the business owner didn't create hyperinflation. The government did that. So the government made Josh poorer, not the business owner. It's a complicated dynamic. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD. Hello. Good morning. How's everybody? Hey, Larry. So a couple things. You, you talked about talking about rights of workers. And I think that one of the rights that we forget about is the right of a worker to compete in a marketplace that isn't flooded with illegal competitors. That is a big problem. I, I think there is a populist thing here that's not a, a union-style democratic. We're not going to steal a plank out of the Democrat platform necessarily. But the, the, the jobs that you named just now, landscapers and plumbers, electricians, a lot of those, you know, you know, a plumber's assistant, because plumbing is a skilled profession, but you get what I'm saying. Sure. Um, they're competing with immigrants from the southern border. I mean, they're coming in $3 million a year. Those people, I got news for you. We complain, that, oh, they're on welfare and they get all these benefits. Well, half of them are, but the other half go get a job and they work under the table for nine, ten, eleven bucks an hour, while an American citizen has to work for you know more than that, because we have to have all the things that they don't have to have. We have to pay taxes. We have to cover these people who aren't working. So that's a big issue. And I think if you tie the the asymmetry in the labor market to immigration then you can kind of remain sort of ideologically pure on your kind of your conservative roots versus we need to pay people more. Because the government, the last thing we need is the government mandating any more. They'll screw that up too, right? I mean, it doesn't matter how good your intentions are. But I think that if we could stop the inflow of illegal competitors, then the American labor market might right itself because – there wouldn't be this nonstop supply of people that are raise their hand and say, I'll do it for less. So I don't think it's that, you know, union-y to, to say you want to do that. Thank you, Larry. That's kind of interesting. I mean, that's kind of where I'm trying to get. I mean, if I were running for office, I don't want to defend labor unions, but I want to respect workers. I mean, that, that's a conservative populist message. Um, I don't want to – I mean, I, I certainly don't want the endorsement of a union boss – but I want all the union workers, a little bit like Trump. I mean, mm -hmm. Trump's kind of there. Um, I think Larry would agree with me. I mean, Larry and I have had this conversation on and off the air. The business owner nor the employee created this hyperinflation. Now, but the macroeconomic stimulus led to the inflation that led Josh and Ken and Dave's paycheck to be worth less than it was pre-COVID. I mean, that's just the reality. 
um, 220-ish a week more to live, the exact same standard of living you were uh, before COVID. That's not the business owner's fault. I mean, that's irresponsible governorship. That, that's government not understanding the complexities of, of the economy. So when you add the overabundance of unskilled laborers, and I've always said, if these people coming across the southern border were coming across the southern border to run for Congress, I mean, there'd be a, a wall as high as the sky. I mean, you couldn't see the top of the wall. It would be, I mean, it would be immaculate. It would be bulletproof. It would be, I mean, there would be, you know, crocodiles in the moats. Uh, that would be barbed wire, electrified barbed wire. There's you know no it. way we're letting these illegals, but these illegals are coming to pick strawberries. And you know how those people to pick strawberries are. I mean, they're a bit deplorable. I mean, she even said it. They're a bit um, deplorable. And this is kind of, um, I mean, this is where we find ourselves. But but I think Larry and Sam make valid points. It's, it is about immigration policy. And you're not trying to run the business for the business owner. I understand the, I mean, the majority of my friends, guys, I've said this over and over. The majority of my friends are business owners. I mean, I grew up a business owner. That's the universe I live in. I can relate to their concerns, their complaints, their criticisms. COVID changed their world forever. They honestly don't know what a dishwasher's worth anymore. They don't know what a welder's worth anymore. They don't know what a fitter's worth anymore. They don't know what an HVAC technician is worth anymore. They felt they had a pretty good understanding pre-COVID. I mean, they felt they understand. If the business owner is living a life, a little better life, a little longer driveway, a little nicer car, but he's living the same life you are, I mean, he's not excluded from going to the grocery store. I mean, he buys gas, so he knows damn well if it's costing him $220 more a week, it's costing you $220 a week. He can stomach it a little better than you can. She can tolerate it a little better than you can, but we're all in that same boat together. And I think that's where the business owner finds themselves. So if you're a business owner and your bottom line is essential and incomes 5 million people who will do the job for half the prize, and you may not be dotting I every I, you may not be crossing every T, but it's close enough. That's where we find ourselves. And immigration lacks immigration policy, open border Democrats and corporate Republicans have kind of agreed that it's in their best interest to keep it as is. Take a break. Back in a few. You can send your union dues to Wake Up Carolina. (laughs) We we will gladly deposit those funds in our political action committee account and work hard to get these um, uniony, (laughs) uniony Republicans elected. Let's go to the phone. Michael in Atlanta. Good morning. You're on. Hey, good morning. How y'all doing this morning? Morning, sir. How are you? I'm good. Um, Ken, would you consider the people on welfare to be skilled or unskilled laborers? Ah, I think they're damn more skilled than I am. They figured out a way to make a living and not work. <laughs> exactly. That's quite a exactly. skill. <laughs> now, the other day you asked Josh a question about immigration. What should immigration be? And Josh answered zero. Uh, and you said, no, we can't be at zero because we got to have unskilled laborers coming into the U.S., to do the jobs that nobody here wants to do. Don't you think that the people on welfare could do those same jobs and they would come off of welfare? Yeah, I mean, and, and, but, but my response to Josh to zero is not just about unskilled laborers and the declining American work ethic. It, it, it's also about the American ideal. I mean, we've always been a place that welcomes aspirational, productive people from all over the world 
And I think we should always celebrate that. If somebody is living in London and they don't feel their government's giving them a chance to be as productive and be as profitable and, and excel, then, then I, I want to welcome those people. Now, lawfully and orderly, but that's what Ellis Island and the Statue of Liberty celebrate. It's not an invasion on the southern border, and it's not exclusive to unskilled labor. I think America is a celebration of human capital, human capital maximizing itself, charting its own course, blazing its own trail, being the best it can be. And I agree with that. I think we should bring in a certain number of immigrants, mostly skilled, because I feel like we have enough unskilled here to take care of the jobs that nobody wants to do. But regardless of whether you want to do the job or not, you got to eat. And I think that's where we have the, the disconnect there. People are still eating and not working. Amen. And, I mean, d- dismantling, and, and, thank you for the call. We got a hard break, Top. Dismantling the welfare system. I mean, that, you know, reorienting who deserves to get paid to do nothing and who doesn't. I mean, th- there are some people in America today, and I'm thinking about human tragedies and unfortunate events in life. I think that the compassionate soul has a consideration to give to that. But, but we can't allow as many people to collect benefit from the government who could be productive and choose not to be. Take a break. Back at a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Verd in Marlboro County. Good morning, Verd. Good morning, man. Uh, can uh, they uh, – what you, what you think about, or what have you heard about the Democratic primary uh, as far as vote, voter uh, participation? I've not heard much at all. I mean, it's, uh, I'm trying to keep up with the Republican primary. We did a bit on Newsmax yesterday. Newsmax, the Todd Starn show, reached out to Rev and asked if I'd join them yesterday afternoon, and we did a bit, and all we did was talk about the South Carolina Republican primary. Bird, I don't know anything about the Democrat well, primary. Well, I'll give you a little recap on Marlboro County. They they had the early voting last week, six days, and uh, two days this week. And uh, as of yesterday, I think they had voted less than 300 people in in the eight days of the early voting for Mr. Joe Biden. And uh, it doesn't look like participation is going to be anything at all. It'll be through, I guess, Saturday when they have all the precincts open in Marlboro County. Uh, in 2016, when President Trump ran, uh, Marble County voted, and this is before we'd even started up the Republican Party in Marble County, we voted 1,754 people Republican then. The Democrats uh, for Hillary, I guess, in 2016, they voted 24-12. <laughs> I, I believe they'll be lucky if they break a 1,000 uh, at the rate they're going. But, you know, we've got a lot of energy here in Marlboro County. I think Dillon County, I was at their meeting the other night with Congressman Russell Fry. Uh, we had a breakfast, uh, legislative breakfast uh, Friday morning with about 100 to 150 people in Bennettsville uh, that we normally do every year. But the energy is with President Trump and, uh, you know, Nikki Haley, you know, she's still on the ballot. But, uh, you know, since six months that I've been working with President Trump, uh, I've only talked to two people that said they were going to vote for her. But I really think the numbers on Trump uh, when we on February 24th with all the early voting we're going to do and all the absentee ballot we're doing, I think Trump is going to break an uh, unbelievable record for the number of votes he's going to get. Thank you, Vert. Appreciate that. We shall see. Um, the, the, the Newsmax guy, what's his name? Todd Starnes. Todd Starnes asked me yesterday. Nikki and I ran together in 2010. 2024 South Carolina is different than 2010 South Carolina. South Carolina's not as Jesus-y as it once was. We've had this huge 
influx of people along our coast. And they're not as evangelical. They're conservative, but I refer to those folks as Giuliani Republicans. I mean, South Carolina is redder than it's ever been. It's just not quite as Jesus-y as it once was. <laughs> and I know that's a weird way to explain it. But when I ran in 2010, I mean, it was Greenville, 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 evangelical, evangelical, evangelical. It Horry County, Georgetown County, Charleston County. I mean, we've had enormous, enormous population growth along our coast. And by and large, they vote Republican. Independence. I mean, I talk a lot about this, guys, the Seinfeld watcher. They're not listening to conservative radio. They aren't watching CNN or Fox News with bated breath. I mean, they're living their lives, doing their thing. At some point in time, they engage. And who wins the heart, minds, and souls of the independents will be the next president of the United States in probably five states. That's, I mean, it's 60 or 70,000 people. And... Uh, political analyst and commentator from Young Voices, Stephen Kent, is with us. Stephen, am I close um, to where this race will be decided? Good morning, sir. To begin with, and and what do you do? You agree with that summation? Yeah, I, I tend to. You know, I think uh, what you were saying about South Carolina being a lot different than it used to be just a couple of years ago certainly rings true. Uh, I'm up from uh, the Raleigh, North Carolina area, so I'll just uh, I'll just say that I'm, I'm a cousin of the Carolina life, but uh, yeah, you know, the Carolinas are changing rapidly as we're getting new people coming here, and therefore what a Republican looks like is not what it used to. But it still comes down, um, Stephen, to independence. I mean, at the end of the day, who wins the mm-hmm. vote of independence in Georgia, in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, in Michigan, in Nevada, in Arizona? I mean, that's, that's going to be who wins the presidency. I think it has a lot Mm. who are afraid of what a Republican or Democrat looks like. Um, I'm going to I'm going to tell you, I actually have, have gotten over the. We have a bad connection. No, we don't have Stephen. a good connection. Sure with a... Stephen, we've got a bad connection. I apologize. If you've got time, you can call back and we'll get you on a better line. But we can hear about every fifth word um, you're saying. Not fair to you, nor nor to our listeners. I apologize for that. Don't know if it's on our end or or their end. I think we've got ours. Um, you know, kind of, kind of rectified, but, um, Stephen, if you can call back, we'll certainly, um, continue that conversation, but, uh, but we couldn't hear, but about every fourth or fifth word he was saying, (laughs) um, you can't understand, but about every fourth or fifth word I say, (laughs) but you can hear them all. You may not understand, but about every fourth or fifth word, but we can't even hear. I know. I'm Stevens. I thought it, I thought it was funny yesterday, by the way, when you're doing the interview with Todd Starnes on Newsmax and you used the term Jesus-y, I thought maybe he'd stop and say, hey, explain what you're talking about there. But, no, I think he knew exactly what you're talking well, about. Well, I don't mean it to be insulting by any stretch uh-huh. of the imagination. South Carolina historically has been a very evangelical vote. I mean, it's been a very evangelical state, and it's just not the case anymore. I'm not saying it's good or bad. We've just changed a lot. I mean, the Carolinas, Stephen was talking about how the, you know, the face and landscape of the Carolinas has, um, has changed. And depending on what report you believe, both Carolinas are among the – five fastest growing states in America. And um and it's changing the uh the dynamic. Is Stephen back with us? Are you are you there, sir? Yeah, I'm here. And we were just talking about independent voters and whether or not they really exist. Yeah, I mean and, and I'm a I'm a big believer in that. I think people like to verbalize that I'm an independent because it gives them this sense of a free spirit and I'm not confined to one party or another. And I can, you know, I, I can I can be more flexible in my political beliefs. I think we all more or less align 
with either a Democrat or Republican. You say what to that? Yeah, you know, it's absolutely true that record numbers of voters today, particularly voters under 30, call themselves independent or unaffiliated with the Republican or Democratic Party. In 2024, we've got right now about 45 percent of American adults who call themselves independent compared to 39 or so percent uh, from 2014. So a lot has changed in 10 years. That number rises and falls based on the toxicity of the brands of the two major parties. But I've got to tell you, we also live in a country where a uh, a doubled amount from four to seven percent of young Americans are now calling themselves LGBTQ. Uh, and that identity has risen from 11 percent to 22 percent in just three years. So I just look at this stuff and I go, like you said, people want to feel special. <laughs> More people when they speak to pollsters, they want to tell you that they're independent minded. But lean Republican and lean Democrat means that they are very, very likely to vote that way unless they are just completely taken by the other candidate. Stephen, would you agree that there's a subset of the electorate that we're still trying to understand? Um, I mean, I I say a lot of this. I say uh, very often to people who are in charge of the GOP in South Carolina that the grave error you will make is believing that Trump voters are Republican voters. They are Trump voters, they can be converted. Right. I mean, they, they eventually could buy into conservative ideology and limited government, lower and lower taxes. But right now, it's this attraction they have to this political disruptor that they believe is somewhat of their crusader. Are you buying that or not? I do. You know, politics today is driven by negative polarization. And this is a phenomenon where you don't know so much what you like as you do know very clearly what you hate. And both for Trump voters, who I think are very motivated by having a guy who's finally willing to punish the far left of this country, to clock them right in between the nose in a way that a polite Republican, a conservative Republican, has never been willing to do. Uh, They are very, very attracted to that, and I, I certainly don't blame them. But independent voters as well. These are the types of voters who are like, well, you know, I want to vote Republican, but he's got to be a nice guy. I got to I got to not be repulsed by him. And so what you've got with a lot of the people who would support the Nikki Haley's of the world is they like this person because they don't match up with the Democrats' lies about what a Republican is. Nikki Haley breaks a lot of the molds about what they're going to throw at any Republican. Nazi, racist, hater of women, corporate shill, like all this kind of stuff. Um, As long as you don't match up with the other side's lies about you, independent voters are going to be attracted to you. Stephen, despite that reality, I mean, I'm from South Carolina. Nikki and I got elected in 2010 together as governor, lieutenant governor. Trump's going to win South Carolina 60-40 on his worst day, 65-35 on his best day. It is a very popular, it may be vindictive, it, it may be more aggressive than we're accustomed to, but it is extremely popular with Republican primary voters. And when you look at a state like South Carolina, I mean, I like to say even Mondale when it's home state. So, so when Nikki comes to South Carolina as their favored child, you know, their, their, their political gift to the, to the universe and loses 60-40, maybe 65-35, I just think that that affirms the, the, the realization that I have of where the Republican base is. Yeah, it's a very different Republican base. Um, you know, the, the Donald Trump effect on the Republican Party was just as much to shed 
the Bill Crystals and sort of rhino Republicans of the world as it was to activate and bring in uh, two new Republican voters for every one that fled, uh, which makes the Republican Party very, very different. And I don't personally have a strong opinion about whether or not it's right or whether or not it's wrong. Republican and Democratic parties are supposed to represent a, uh, a constituency, a voter block, and reflect their views. And the Republican Party now is a party that reflects the views and, and temperament of Donald Trump. Well explained. Stephen, thank you for your time, sir. Thank you. And, and that's, that's the, the question that nobody knows the answer to. I mean, if Robert doesn't know the answer to this question, and here's Robert's answer. You ready? I don't know the answer to that. Because um, <laughs> I'll ask Robert. I said, Robert, there's no doubt Trump sheds votes. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, Twitter's not a an accurate representation. I mean, the Twitter sphere is full of people who... If you ask or not, they're telling you they aren't voting for Trump. I mean, the Adam Kinzinger, Liz Cheney, Bill Crystals of the world. I mean, they're actively trying to influence Republican voters into not voting for Donald Trump or, you know, worse yet, vote for for Joe Biden. That's not a reflection of where the general population are. We don't know where they are. We genuinely don't know that for one Trump voter, how many does he lose? Uh, I think Stephen just said... That he believe I didn't say I believe I don't put words in the gentleman's mouth, but he he sounded like he suspected. Wow, that's giving him a lot of leech. Uh, he sounded like he suspected that for every one Bill Crystal, there's two workers in Peoria, Illinois, who have been low propensity voters that now show up consistently in the name of Donald Trump and America First. I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, I've not seen an analysis. I do believe this. I do believe that Donald Trump gives Republicans the best chance to win in November, despite what the media says, because if Donald Trump's on the ballot, the Trump voter, the yet-to-be convert, ain't coming back to vote for Nikki Haley. I mean, they're just not. They're not going to be excited. They're not going to be enthusiastic. They're going to sit this one out. They're going to sulk. They're going to be angry and frustrated that their guy didn't win. They don't believe their guy got a fair shake. So, yes, I mean, when Trump's the nominee, some of the Haley support will probably sit it out. But if Trump's not the nominee and Haley is, I think a larger share of the Trump base sits it out. And, uh, and we're in the process of uh, some sort of um, mystical convergence of the, uh, the Trump, you know, energy and some of the Republican ideology. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few more. 843-661-0937 is our number. Talking about independent voters, um, there's a there's a lot of work being done. And I want to say this, as critical as many have been about Trump's lack of discipline, I mean, they, there's beauty in that. I mean, you could easily accuse me of lacking discipline on the radio. I mean, there, there's a bit of intrigue. I think Josh has talked a lot about this. There's a bit of intrigue when you think someone might say something that you don't expect them to say. There, there's an entertainment value. To that And Trump, I don't know if he does it intentionally. I mean, I know he's a master marketer and brander um, and embellisher, but, but th- there is intrinsic value in watching someone for 10 minutes. And normally you can kind of predict exactly what they're going to say, when they're going to say it with Trump. You can't. You just can't. I mean, th- there's value in that, guys. There's enormous value, despite what some of the consultants and experts say. You got to show more discipline. You, you got to be more precise. You got to be more measured. You got to have the right temperament. I, I'm not sure I buy that. I, I really and truly am not. 
It's a weird and odd place we find ourselves. But this morning we began the show talking about some of the trials that Trump, literal trials. I'm not talking about trials and tribulations. I'm talking about <laughs> literal trials. And you got this funny Willis situation with old Bo and some money and some vacations. And you got investigations now by the Georgia Senate and um, Jim Jordan and the House Oversight Committee. You've got the Fisher case and the Supreme Court, the Sarbanes-Oxley interpretation that Jack Smith used. I, I told Rock, uh, Josh and Rev this morning, normally you'd cross your fingers that these cases get dismissed, that these cases go away, I mean, they, that you know they're done with. I mean, Trump stands loud and proud and, you know, no. I mean, I think he's better. I think he's better when he's under attack. It's almost like I don't want the court to rule right now. I don't want the wheels to fall off Fonnie Willis's trial. I mean, I think they're both bogus. I think they're political persecution. I think they're witch hunt 101, but I think Trump is a better candidate when he's being, you know, tried every day in the, in the public domain, because you've seen the approval ratings of media and some of these historians that are trying to convince Americans this is unprecedented. Well, it is, is unprecedented. I mean, the government's never gone after a candidate like it decided to in this uh, most recent election. But that's, I mean, normally you're crossing your fingers that your guy can wiggle off the hook in this trial. They can wiggle off the hook in that trial. And those things go away and you get back to issues and campaigns. Nah. I mean, I think Trump's much better if these courts continue to pursue RICO charges and conspiracy charges against the government based on an interpretation of Sarbanes-Oxley. I mean, that's what we've got, guys. But that, that's where we are. And, and now we find out this revelation that Fonnie Willis was allegedly, I want to be careful, allegedly having an affair with Nathaniel, Nathaniel Wade, who has collected $700,000 in financial benefit for being part of the RICO case against um, Donald Trump. RICO and Sarbanes-Oxley. I mean, that's where Trump finds himself. And I just don't think we need those cases to go away. I think we need those cases on CNN every night. And sooner or later, the independent-minded voter, whether they're independents or not, I don't know, kind of scratch their head and say, I thought Sarbanes-Oxley was financial crimes. Did you know that Fonnie Willis was sleeping with one of the lawyers that collected 700000 I mean, I think it's much to Trump's advantage for this silliness to continue rather than, I mean, I'm sure he wants it to go away. I'm sure he wants it to go away, but but I think in the in the interest of him becoming president again, he's he's a better candidate when these two trials are front and center. What do they say? They're going to indict him right to the White House. Yeah, I mean, one more indictment, and, and he's to the uh, to the White. He said yesterday that he thought he'd beat Washington and Lincoln. <laughs> he said a lady came up to him. He and would. Said, I think he goes one and one because I well, unless he secures the Jefferson endorsement. <laughs> If he secures the Jefferson endorsement, he may be 2-0 against Washington and, uh, and Lincoln. And it's funny that this is a real conversation. <laughs> well, it's funny that he said that. I know. <laughs> and some consultant on the front row is going, oh, crap. <laughs> but, but I was going to say this. As undisciplined as he appears, and he does at times appear to be very undisciplined, there's a method of the madness, but his campaign is unbelievably good. I'm telling you guys, trust me, his campaign is exceptional. He has hired two people that have transformed the Trump financial, I mean, excuse me, the, the Trump campaign machine into something that is, I mean, it is efficient, it's competent, 
Let me ask you this, guys. How many leaks have you heard in this campaign? Zero. I mean, they are unbelievably competent people running this campaign. And for whatever reason, I mean, I don't know if they had a meeting at Trump Towers that Donald will work, but it's got to be like this. I got no idea why he's bought into this, but he has exceptional people running his campaign this time. 2020, not so much. I mean, 2020, 2016 was the anomaly of all anomalies. I mean, who saw that coming? I mean, some did, but most didn't. 2020 was a, you got to execute a campaign, and they sucked. I mean, they were lousy, caught flat-footed, um, you know, the unsupervised mail-in ballots. I mean, they, they were just so terrible in 2020. They are really, really good in 2024. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. You're on. Kid, imagine feeling sorry for a white man, a white male obnoxious billionaire, but he managed to get that to happen. You know, I'll, I'll tell you another thing, too. You're talking about workers. I've been both worker and all owner. And I'll tell you what, there's, there's, I'll tell my older brother this all the time, that a worker is sick and tired of a guy with a 9,000-square-foot house on the Wando River and a beach house on the Isle of Palms when the guy calls by, you say, can you cut me a deal? They're sick and tired of rich people asking them for deals. Rich people never gave a poor man a deal or a working man a deal. But there's always these rich guys wanting the working man to give them a deal. Can you do this a little cheaper? Can you do that a little cheaper as you're getting in your $250,000 car? That's one thing that ticks people off, and it would tick me off. And it ticks me off today where, where I'm at right now, but people want me to cut them a deal but they got a $6 million home on the Isle of Palms. But I'll tell you another thing, too. When those um, poor folks, those, those, all those people got killed over there on the border, what was it, the border with uh, uh, Jordan? Iraq and, you know, what, uh, Iraq and uh, uh, Syria, what that where it was, kids? It's on, the, that it's on the Jordanian-Syrian border. Yeah, the, the Jordanian border. I actually know one of their top generals. He went to the Senate with me. But they're saying, if I'm an African-American, if my kid, my daughter's son or son got killed on that border, and you know, you realize that almost, almost you know, prob- probability-wise, almost every, all three of those African-American folks that were killed, all, they and all of their friends and family voted for Joe Biden. I would want to know why did the guy I voted for send my son or daughter in a Jordanian Syrian border to get blown up by a damn drone strike. What the hell were they doing there in the first place? And why would you vote for him over Donald Trump, who, by the way, is not a Republican? But why would you vote for him over a guy that would not have, if Donald Trump was in office, there wouldn't have been a base on the Jordanian Syrian border. You dig what I'm saying? I do. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. I mean, that, that would be that would be hard for me to come to grips with. I mean, it would be hard enough to lose your kid, but to lose your kid on the Jordanian-Syrian border by a drone strike sponsored by Iran. I mean, just kind of stew on that for a second. I've got this kid, 23 years old, all were African-Americans, all were Georgia natives. I mean, I do believe there's some politics there. I mean, I'm not going there because I think it's tragic that three young people, I think the youngest 23, the oldest 46, all three African-Americans, all three native um, Georgians. But but I, I mean, I'm sitting there at night staring at the ceiling 
and I'm and I'm hurt. I mean, I'm 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 distressed. I'm I'm beside myself. I lost the most important thing in my life, my kid. I didn't lose my kid to cancer. I didn't lose my kid in a car wreck. I didn't lose my kid in some some accident. I didn't lose my kid, um, you know, because he was born with a disease that challenged him all his life, and then you know the disease went out of anyway. I mean, there, there's a million ways to die. But I'm sitting there looking at the ceiling, and I start thinking about, okay, my kid joined the army because there wasn't a lot happening around here. I think the the youngest person, the female, 23-year-old female, her grandfather was in the Army. Her father might have been in the Marines. She was in the Army, um, kind of a product of generational service. And and I'm laying in the bed, and I guess that helps you deal with it. I mean, when called, you go. and she's But I'm thinking about the world, and I'm thinking about America, and I'm thinking about our southern border, and I'm thinking about my kid. Why isn't my kid defending the southern border? Why, why is my kid exposed to danger on the Jordanian-Syrian border with an Iranian drone or an Iranian-sponsored drone, and didn't we just send pallets full of cash to Iran, and didn't we just release billions of dollars in international funds that John Kirby said they can't do but humanitarian with the money? But in the most recent question posed to John um, Kirby, Kirby was asked by a reporter from the Washington Post, give Post a little credit, hey, there were three transactions, there were three wires of that money that we basically released to the Iranians. Do we know what those transactions were made for? And Kirby said, I'll quote, you ready? I can't give an answer to that. I mean, that's the guy that we hold accountable. That's the guy that knows all the answers to all those questions. But Kirby looks at the press corps and says, I can't give an answer. Now, six months ago, he said, they can't do anything with this money unless we let them do with this money, and it's got to be humanitarian in nature. Well, six months later, the Iranians have three transactions. Kirby, the same guy that said they can't do anything with the money that we don't let them do with the money, is asked about those three three transactions. Did that money buy drone? I mean, did that money fund for the weaponry to kill the American soldiers? I mean, I think you've got to ask yourself that. I mean, play it out to the end. I just think it's gut-wrenching to know Mm. how exposed our men and women are in places that I just question American safety and security. Why? Yeah, why? Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Hello, you're on. Hey, uh, I tell you that uh, that response about, uh, well, uh, I, I can't. Is it? I can't tell you, or I will not tell you. That's a. That's the question I have about uh, these these guys. Uh, my my concern they, is. My concern is. I mean, I could live with. I will not tell you. My concern is he honestly doesn't know that they genuinely turned this money loose, trusting the Iranians to be you know straightforward. And they're just not. So, so if he said, I will not tell you, I, I'd live with that. I mean, I'd, I'd rather him tell us. But but when he says, you know, I can't tell you, I don't think those folks know. I think that's how incompetent this White House and his leadership are. I fear that you may be true, Ken. Uh, that, that, that might be a fact because uh, these guys, some of them seem, appear to be dumber than a sack of rocks. They're just uh, – <laughs> they're just – out there, they they're not taking any. The trust Iranians is beyond belief. 
I mean, all we can trust them to do is everything they can to harm the U.S. of A. And uh, I, I feel uh, it, it just hurts my heart that uh, those, those young soldiers were killed out there and doing a job that a lot of people cannot do and and other people will not do that can do it. And they were doing a job and being faithful to the, to their uh, country, and they got killed for basically a dumb reason. And that happens a lot in uh, warfare. And the fact that we're the, to assume that we're not at war, well, we may be saying we're not at war, but they sure as heck are, and that's a fact. And it's a it's a dangerous thing for to. Uh, Assume that uh, these people are going to do anything in our interest, and giving them resources, money is fungible, and you know what fungible means, Ken. There, that means it, it can be uh, placed, and it can be moved, and it can be apply pressure, resources, and manpower to all sorts of things. And I think that uh, very likely that some of that very money was used to kill our our uh, soldiers up there in syria thank you mike appreciate that yeah i mean yeah but to believe that they're not going to take money set aside for humanitarian and do something other than that with it wow okay uh let's go to the phone our next caller is jay and nichols hi jay you're on the air yeah you just made the same point i was going to make you just freed up six billion dollars from their economy that they can spend on something else you know it, that, that's a red herring, that they can only spend it on humanitarian purposes. That just gives them $6 billion that they were going to spend on humanitarian services to uh, buy weapons and spend it to kill our people. You know, I, you know, the politicians make it all sound really good, but when you sit down and think about it, you know, come on, we're not that dumb. Thank you, sir. Appreciate the call. I mean, I'd like to believe we're not that dumb. Um, I've always said a person is smart. People can be dumb. I mean, this group think, this herd mentality, you know, uh, everybody goes this way, so I'm going this way. Everybody thinks that, so I'm thinking this. Trump is a crazy man. I mean, how many people really believe that? And how many people have been kind of conditioned to follow the lead of the loudest and most authoritative voices? You know, th- th- there's some people that we've historically trusted, and they say Trump's a crazy man. Now, we had a little bit of a k- kind of a bit about that, yeah, Trump derangement syndrome and, and some of the impulses, some of the characteristics, some of the, uh, some of the weirdness about it to me. I mean, it's just bizarre to me that, um, that someone would say that the Biden administration has been, you know, more effective in keeping Americans safe, keeping the economy prospering than the, uh, than the Trump administration but it's this group think. I mean, it's somebody out there that they trust and believe. And, and I go back to the kind of the central, and I think this is hardwiring, Rev. I really believe that a certain percentage of Americans just by their very nature trust government. I mean, they just do. Uh, I, I have no idea what sort of hardwiring that is. I have no idea what sort of impulses are involved in there. But I think there's a percentage of them. Is it half? Is it more? I don't know. I don't have any idea. But but they just tend to give government the benefit of the doubt. 
And if, if Iranian money ends up killing American soldiers, then they believe that's just the government making honest mistakes. You know, I mean, you trusted the Iranians to do what they said they do. And, and these kids are on the Jordanian-Syrian border. And, I mean, the government would never allow that to happen. I don't think the government intentionally let that happen. But the incompetence, I mean, the, 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 the lack of accountability in our government allows those things to happen over and over and over again. And I just believe that liberal, the liberal mindset gives government more of the benefit of the doubt than the conservative mindset. I think that's something in our DNA. I think we're born in a weird way with a certain makeup. And then these experiences and influences. Uh, my father was a small business owner. My dad despised government because he believed government at every turn made his life harder. I mean, government never helped him with anything. Um, except maybe, you know, paving a little turn in to get into a, to a truck lot or something. But my dad, every day of his life, believed with every fiber of his body that he would be so much better off if government left him alone. Well, I heard that. I lived at that. Obviously, that had a big impact on me and my opinions about government. I mean, I can't escape that. Uh, my, my father was the male dominant influence in my life, and he despised government. Well, naturally, I'm going to be more likely to father in or follow in my in my father's footsteps. I just think those of us who are highly suspicious of the the genuineness of government have had a good run. I mean, we've had a damn good run. I mean, I hate to say conspiracy theorists have carried the day, but all these things that we thought and spoke about and believed in, uh, and I'm talking about big issues. I'm talking about COVID. I'm talking about shutdowns in business i mean you know the 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 sympathizer of government would say well i mean you know they're not going they're not going to you know place money over priority health i mean there's no way the government would allow that but the government's not going to let pfizer make a lot of money injecting experimental medicine in you unless they know it's safe well i mean how do you i mean to me that's a bizarre thought i mean that that's absolutely i mean that that's the most naive thing you could imagine and to believe, I'll give you another example, J6 Commission. I had a debate yesterday, somebody at the gym talking about J6. I said one day on this show that everybody on the J6 Commission had voted to impeach Trump at least once. And the person said, that's not true. There were Republicans on there. Well, that person is sympathetic to government. That person hears CNN say, well, there were Republicans on the, the bipartisan J6 Commission. Now, January 6th Commission, CNN doesn't say, the New York Times doesn't report, ABC News doesn't report that, Everybody on that commission voted to impeach Donald Trump. The person at the gym, I don't know if this is a genetic makeup, Josh. I don't know if it's something you acquire over time. But I think Americans, by and large, come to a fork in a road, and they trust government or they don't. They sympathize with government or they don't. They give government the benefit of the doubt or they don't. And I think the federal government today has proven to be untrustworthy, fundamentally dishonest, intentionally and fundamentally dishonest, punitive in nature, punitive in nature. It's not a constitutional government. It's not. I mean, the, the concept of the Constitution is to protect people from its government. Do you really believe that that's the America you live in today? Of course not. But there's some out there that have this, I don't know, genetic makeup, you know, kind of a, a the DNA combination of wacko, majacamo. I don't know what it is inside someone's heart, belly, soul, mind uh, to make them believe that government is genuinely 
looking after you and your best interest. Government is about today, not always, but today the federal government is about having power, having control, having the ability to influence, to, to, to basically limit personal freedoms, personal liberties. It's contrary to the Constitution. The American federal government today runs directly contrary to the founding principles that were based on um, a neoclassical interpretation of the U.S. Constitution. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Someone's on the phone. We got to apologize. We got an app issue. It's not the trouble is not in our set. The trouble is in. So Rev says in the Spectrum um, delivery. I don't know the internet. They're having issues with their internet. It's not our equipment. We're 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 good to go here. Yeah. We apologize. I think it's Sumter. We're having some issues. Some issues on the amp. Um, that's all I know. I mean, if Rev wants to add something, have at it. But I'm hearing. That the app isn't working, nor are we on the air in Sumter. Rev says it's not our deal, but rather a spectrum issue. Yeah, pretty much it. Everything here okay. is working okay, but something's happening out there in the uh, wherever. <laughs> wherever the internet is, um, some of our, our streamers are not able to connect, and our connection to feeds for the affiliate stations in Sumter and potentially Orangeburg are having some interruptions this morning. And we apologize Intermittently. for that. We apologize for that. Yep. Let's go to the phone. And we're aware of the issue. Uh, Joe in Hartsville, hi. You're on. Yeah, it's, it's been okay for the last 20, 30 minutes. Both y'all and something was going out earlier. The, the amazing thing to me, Ken, is how easily this government just lies to our face and, and expects us to believe it. You know, words have meaning. When they sit there and say the border's closed, the border's closed the last three years, and now all of a sudden they impeach Marcus and they're trying to get this new law for the border. The, the border's in chaos. And notice Joe Biden didn't say, give me the authority, give me the power. He has the authority already to shut the border down. You remember here a couple months back when that, car crashed on the northern border and they shut the whole thing down. He's got that power to do the same thing on the southern border. There is no legal immigration between the ports of entry. We talked about that the other day. But Biden came in, took the the terrorist designation off the Houthis, and now they're they're back they're terror they've always been terrorists. He's, he's given Iran all this oil, giving them all the money so they can supply everything Trump did, he reversed. So they lie about everything they do. They they told us they created over a million jobs, and 800,000 of them was a lie. I mean, they, they lie about his approval so that whenever they steal the election, oh, well, his approval rating was good, so... Everything's good. We won. And the American people just don't question anything. I mean, they're not going to impeach my orchestra, but he's sat there and lied to the, the American people. But that's all they want is power. They don't want authority. They have the authority. They want the power. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. But, I mean, put yourself in a liberal Democrat elected official's shoes. Why would you tell the truth? That's right. You're never checked. Well, I mean, that, that's where I'm headed. I mean, if the, if, the, if the media is 
kind of the arbiter of truth. If historically we've trusted the media to dig into what this politician said, juxtaposed to what is actually true, but the media doesn't do that. But they're propaganda arm. They're an extension of the DNC. So if you're a liberal Democrat, why would you ever tell the truth? I mean, it's really it would be it would be politically it would be political stupidity to tell the truth when you got all the wind in your sail. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. We're talking about that dadgum government, right, Josh? That's you know, right. You know what else the government has done? Because I want to do something either today or tomorrow about radical policies. We talk about Trump being a radical political personality, but there's nothing real radical about his policies. Um, Obamacare is an extremely radical policy. You may not believe Obama was a radical political figure. I mean, I think he was. I think it was an absolute radical and extremist and and nearly a communist, absolutely a a socialist. But the policy that changed health care in America was the most radical thing to come down the pike since maybe the New Deal. I mean, it, 20% of our end, 20% of our GDP is spent on health care. We completely, completely redid our health care economy. That's radical. I mean, that's extremely radical. And the majority of us came on the short end of that stick. Um, and if you're one of us who came on the short end of the stick, you need to listen to me for about 30 seconds. You ready? Because health insurance is complicated. It's gotten more and more and more expensive. Everyone's situation is different. Obamacare says, no, it's not. It's all the same. And here's policy A, B, and C. If you're under the age of 65, if you're reasonably healthy, you're paying too much for health insurance. I mean, if you're not on a big group plan, if you're reasonably healthy, if you're under the age of 65, call 839-888-3970, 839-888-3970 or go to the website realchoicehealthcare.com. It's worth your time. It'll eventually and potentially save you a lot of money. Let's go to the phone. Bobby in Hartsville. Hey, Bobby, you're on. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, first thing I want to say, Ken, is uh, I don't know whether I should be ashamed and embarrassed or proud that the uh, – Facebook pages, uh, post that you posted went over my head. Um, you know, because I, I didn't even know the coach's name was Lamont. So I guess you are a bigger South Carolina Gamecock basketball fan than I am. I'll stick with football. Everything I do, Bobby, and I don't know how to do anything that involves smartassery. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I wish I did. It's a disease I've got. Everything I do has some level of smartassery, and that was just one other example. I hear you. Hey, uh, just a little bit off subject with something I was thinking about. Um, you know that that trial that uh, that happened a while back that uh, was all about Paul Paul and Roro and Mags. If you know what I'm talking about, um, the Murdoch trial. I hear some things gearing back up with that, and uh, I know you had followed it some when it was uh, on earlier and you had someone, I think that came on a couple of times and updated you. What do you have on that? Uh, I've actually funny. You asked Bobby, I will folks came on twice and he has really covered this thing from one end to the other has good sources within sled, good For sources Fitz within, news. Uh, with, with Fitz news, good sources within the attorney general's office. And um, I reached out to will Sunday 
and he said, let me check with my calendar because he'd love to come back on and uh, and kind of update us. I've not kept up with the latest episode as much as I did, you know, the first, but um, but Will's on top of it, and I've reached out to him to try to get him to come on the show and kind of update us as to exactly where we are. That sounds good. Yeah, I'd be interested in that because I hear there's some uh, some things that may turn. Uh, he's going to be able to uh, – I guess he's going to file anyway, you know. But um, it looks like looks like it could be some trouble in there. Thank you, Bobby. You appreciate that. Gene Toll has taken over kind of um, command of the of the, 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 the request for a retrial. I don't want to get ahead of myself because I've not kept up with this latest episode like we did in the others. I mean, I, I stand where I stand. I'm always suspicious of people who name their homes. I mean, I, as simple as that sounds, I'm just always a little bit nervous about that. Do the, do, the, do, the, do the laws really apply to me? Do the rules that everybody else has to live by, do they really mean for those laws to apply? Um, to me, there's a certain, <laughs> dare I say, lack of humility uh, that goes along with that. I'm not talking about, I mean, I understand plantations and big, big farms and ranches. I mean, I get all that. But just a home, I'm going to name a home, that's a bit different um, to me. 843 843- Six six one zero nine three seven is our number. I'm really interested in hearing the details because I've seen bits and pieces. I mean, obviously there was a trial. Murdoch was back in the courtroom, and they're trying to see if there was reason to basically throw out the verdict and have the trial again uh, after jury tampering is well, been the, the, discussed. The clerk, and, the clerk got out of control. I mean, I think that did she violate some code of the law? I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know how you interpret her. You know, Harputlian is arguing that she did. Um, and you know, a mistrial and you can't try him again and all, I mean, they're swinging for the fence. Will, will they, will they end up getting an infield single? I don't know, but, um, but there seems to be some, some impropriety of the clerk mingling with the, uh, some of the jurors. Now, is that juror tampering? Uh, where's the line? Did she cross the line? How many times did she cross the line? Is it, you know, to get a minute? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know enough about what happens. Uh, Patrick McLaughlin. Actually, a local attorney here has um knows that world much better than I do. I may try to get Patrick to see if he'll come on in the next day or so. I mean, that would be easier to get Will. Will's out of town in Columbia running that Fitz News site. Um, Patrick came on a couple of times, and I think did as good a job as anybody of explaining from a legal perspective. I mean, I can give you the good old boy perspective. I mean, I've given you some of that, but I'm not a lawyer, and a lot of this is legally. I mean, it's legal language. It's you know, the interpretation of a statute, it's, you know, um, just because something doesn't smell right don't mean it's illegal. And just because something stinks, you, you see where I'm headed. I mean, you know, you've got the public perception of certain things, and then you've got legality. So I may try to reach out to Patrick, who is a partner in the Wakila Law Firm here in town, and see if he'll come on and, and kind of do the best, ah, give us the lawyerly update. Of, um, of exactly where we are, what has changed, if anything has. I mean, I think the biggest revelation we have found is this clerk wrote a book, and the clerk saw an opportunity, and probably small-town clerk, uh, all of a sudden brought lights, camper, and media, me, media attention, and couldn't help herself, and <laughs> got herself in, in places where historically clerks don't need to be um, getting involved in, and that was probably the genesis of why the consideration to have a new trial. Um, I, I think Judge Toll said no to a new trial 
but there may be some concessions made. We'll get Patrick uh, to come on, and then I'll try to circle back with Will. Seems to be some interest of our listeners. Um, I mean, I kept up with it pretty, you know, intensely at the beginning, but once the verdict was read and Alec Murdoch was found guilty and went to prison, I mean, I felt that was kind of put to bed. And then the revelation of the clerk <laughs> doing some things that, um, ah, are they illegal? I don't know. Is it untoward? Yeah, but untoward doesn't equal um, illegal. 843-661-0937 is our number. I mentioned earlier that the Trump campaign is far better this time. I mean, that tr- Trump's a kind of a similar candidate, says things that uh, most candidates can't get away with, but, but he says them because he's convinced the public that he'll say what he believes and you do the best you can to deal with it. But in 16, I have no idea what sort of campaign infrastructure he had in 16. I mean, I don't. I mean, I, yeah, I can't begin. I think it was just one of those comets that came out of nowhere. And you better get out of its way or you're going to get run over. I mean, I just believe it was kind of the perfect storm. I mean, he rides down the escalator. He says they're rapists, they're murderers. He gets challenged on television about rapists and murderers. And he says, well, somebody doing the raping and murdering. I mean, I'll never forget that. I mean, I, I will never the, the Today Show. I mean, the, the Savannah Guthrie or one of these talking heads. Uh, what did Limbaugh call them? News babes. Um, one of the news babes basically pinned him down and said, hey, you called these people rapists and murderers. I mean, do you have proof of that? And Trump said, I'll never get said, well, somebody's doing the raping and murdering. And I'm like, you can't say that, dude. You can't win a county council seat and say that. But it was a rocket ship. I mean, it was just unlike anything we had ever seen. Um, the U.S. Olympic team, Buster Douglas and Trump in 16. I mean, that's shocking the world. Nobody saw that coming. In 2020, he's the incumbent president. It was his responsibility to put together a, a, a formidable campaign apparatus. They did not do that. They did not do that. It was, I mean, I was involved in that. And, I mean, I was a member of the Trump Steering Committee in South Carolina, and I just saw how bad it was. I mean, it was just not well run. They felt, Rev, that, that, that Trump was a force of nature, able to win no matter what they did. And along comes COVID. Along comes unsupervised mail-in ballots. And 40% of all the ballots cast in America, nobody saw them cast that ballot. I mean, imagine that. 40% of every ballot cast and counted in the 2020 presidential election were cast without a witness. I mean, that number is normally 15%, 12 to 15%. It was 40%. I'm not talking about early voting. I'm not talking about absentee. I'm talking about unsupervised mail-in ballots. And I just think Trump was called flat-footed. Was the election stolen? I don't have any proof of that. So I've been real hesitant to say the election was stolen because I don't know what sort of impact that had. I do know there are statistical anomalies that make me scratch my head. And we've gone over some of those statistical anomalies. You know, higher than ever percentage of voters during a pandemic all in Democrat-leaning precincts. I mean, the historical average applied about everywhere except these heavily Democratic Gwinnett County, Fulton County, Maricopa County, Philadelphia, Detroit, uh, Racine County, Wisconsin. That'd be Milwaukee. Um, I mean, this, the, the Democrat precincts overperformed. Maybe they had the greatest get-out-the-vote effort ever. Or maybe, just maybe, some of the unsupervised mail-in ballots were not on the up-and-up. 
They weren't legit. But I can't say the election was stolen. And I'd rather us not say the election was stolen. No matter what your feelings are, as we try to win in 2020, let's kind of do a, a scout's honor. We aren't going to say the election was stolen. We're going to say there are a lot of things that happened that we can't understand. We can't explain. Um, you got to be a moron to not believe Zuckerberg's half billion dollars influenced, uh, I think, 88% of all the $455 million that Mark Zuckerberg donated, not to a political action committee, but rather the election commissions themselves. You can't deny that that half billion dollars drove turnout in heavy Democrat precincts. There's a little of me that finds that genius. I mean, it, it's a little bit jealous. I mean, I, I'm a little bit jealous that somebody on that side went to Zuckerberg and said, hey, if you'll give us $450 million, we can drive turnout in Democrat precincts up by 13 to 15%. Wow. I mean, that may be the smartest investment anybody has ever made in the American elections. When you really think about it, and if you got a hundred billion bucks, what I have, you know, what, what's five percent of that? It's nothing to someone like that. Um, and once again, the money was not given to a political action committee or some of the confines and constraints. I mean, it was a grant given to the Fulton County Election Commission, and the Fulton County Election Commission bought six vans, and those six six vans went and picked up people. I mean, they found people who weren't registered to vote but had been mailed a. Uh, you know, I mean, unsolicited mail-in ballots. I mean, the van went around for about a month or two, had a list, and said, hey, Mr. Baker, we understand you don't vote. I don't vote, don't care about politics. Mr. Baker, someone mailed you a ballot. Yeah, I got the ballot in here. Mr. Baker, we can help you fill out that ballot. I don't want to fill that ballot out. Don't care anything. Mr. Baker, 20 bucks. I mean, if I gave you 20 bucks, would you fill that ballot out? Would you give me that ballot? I mean, I don't know that that's what happened, but I think it's more than likely um, that's what happened. I want to take a break and come back. We've got um, we got a guest here, Ryan Schmales at 825. But on the other side of Ryan Schmales, I want to go through some kind of smart boy data about where this election stands and why I know, I know for a fact that Trump has incredibly serious and smart people running his campaign, unlike in 2020. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. No Ryan Schmelz yet, Josh? Not yet. No Ryan Schmelz. Not quite as punctual as he usually is. Old Ryan Schmelz. You're not old Ryan Schmelz can be, don't you, Josh? He'd be How's not that? quite as punctual as, um, <laughs> as, he, as he normally is. <laughs> Maybe not laser focused like we are in the morning, delivering the goods to the trusted masses across the fruited, uh, the fruited plains. The Celsius is must have a little um little more Celsius than than normal. Somebody texted and said, You're drinking urine. I'm like, no, I'm not drinking urine, what? moron. I'm drinking um fruit flavored Celsius watered with life water. I got my reverse osmosis life water and my Celsius because I'm too old to have a two hundred gram jolt of caffeine first thing in the uh, in the morning. Coffee has a little bit about forty to fifty grams. Uh, you drink that 200 grams. I mean, young folks can stand that. I'm afraid I may have a heart attack on the air, so I water it down with life water. Makes it last longer. And um, you do have a, a perfect ratio. And I mean, you, you I work do. it. I mean, you've got a got it's, a deal down in here. It's I my noticed. routine. Yeah. It's uh, unlike Ryan Schmelz. We have routines, <laughs> and we we're punctual relating to our 
to our routine. And and Ryan Schmelz, he's he's called the show enough, and we seem to have a rapport. I think he he likes the we'll rapport cut him some back slack. and forth. We'll he cut was, him some he was ribbing you the other day about yep. something, and uh, and yeah, so so we feel very comfortable uh, ribbing him back, even though he can't hear it. But he hasn't called us, and he was scheduled to call three minutes ago. So we'll just giddy up to something else. Okay, you ready? We were talking about how good this Trump team is. Trump is the same candidate he was in 16. He's about the same candidate he was in 20. I mean, he's older. And and some of the media is trying to make a deal about him being older. And, and how do you accuse of Biden being too old when your guy's only three years younger? But, I mean, I think if you just see the – I mean, if you let the two stand side by side and have a debate and conversation with one another, you'll see which one's got dimension and which one is just getting a little older. I mean, everybody loses a half step as they get a bit older. Joe Biden is left. I mean, it just is – the guy jogs everywhere he goes now to suggest to you that he's vir- you know, he's vivacious and he's he's ready for whatever comes um, his <laughs> what, way. What do you think when you see him jog it's across stupid. the I stage? I mean, it's dumb. It, 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 it's amazing to me. And, and once again, I'm not in people's heads, so I don't know what makes people react the way they do. But every time he does that fake jog, I'm thinking to myself, you voted for him. I mean, whomever you are, you voted for him. I mean, my guy says crazy things. My guy gets out of hand every now and then. My guy makes me scratch my head at times. But my guy doesn't look like he never has a clue. I mean, Biden at times looks like he doesn't have a clue. Um, I've got a weird, why does the sun always shine in Joe Biden's eyes? He is very squinty. He just got this squinty look like I can hardly see. I mean, I'm driving into the into the sunlight. There's no sun. I mean, there's no sun anywhere, but he's got this weird, just out-of-touch look that is very customary for uh, for him. Anyway, let, let's move on. We'll, we'll move past Ryan, and if he calls later, we'll get to him later. If not, then no biggie. I want to I try to focus on some of the analytics that I'm reading about in, in the Trump world. Now, now bear with me. This will get a bit weedy. I mean, we'll get in the weeds a bit, but at the end of the day, campaigns are about ideas. They're about ideologies. They're about candidates. They're about uh, messaging. They're about fundraising. Yeah, I'm interested in what you are seeing that's being done differently this time versus 2020. The math. They understand the math. They're focused on the math. There is going to be a campaign. There are going to be, um, you know, back and forth. They're going to be negative ads and positive ads. They're going to be uplifting messages. They're going to be, you know, 501c3s and super PACs that do all these. But at the end of the day, it's about math. And in 2020, I questioned whether they were focused like they needed to be on the math. The crowd running Trump's campaign have identified about four and a half million low propensity voters that identify or are registered Republicans. How do we know they identify or are as registered Republicans? There's been some cross searching here. There's been some analytics done um, the non-educated, the non-college educated, that's crazy that they call it non-educated, non-college educated white voter, four and a half million in Arizona, Georgia, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Four and a half million voters in one, two, three, four states. The election will be won by somewhere between 60 and 70,000 votes. I mean, this is from the Trump camp. I mean, they are doing the analytics necessary to not worry. I mean, obviously, there's messaging, fundraising, but this is the math. Low 
propensity voters, four and a half million that are out there that have checked out. I mean, they're registered Republicans, haven't voted. They identify as Republicans, haven't voted. The the the, the Trump campaign are, are laser-focused, hyper-focused, and, and here's the extreme they've gone, Reb, and this warms my heart. They have identified precincts. They have a terminology called a super chase precinct. In these states, in Arizona, Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, I find it odd that Pennsylvania is not on that list, but it's not. Mm. And I got a feeling that they're giving up the ghost on Pennsylvania. I just think they believe as Kahaley does. Why waste our time? In other words, the Democrats are going to come up with a number they think Trump gets in Pennsylvania, and they're going to have 10,000 more votes. How? Don't know. Don't have any idea. But they will do that. It's magic. Well, I mean, Kahaley says if a Republican's not ahead by four points in Pennsylvania, he loses. Four points is kind of the break even. If Trump is up four in Pennsylvania, it's going to be late in the night, maybe the next day, the day after the day. I may stop counting votes twice. I don't know. But Pennsylvania has a propensity for making things work the way the Democrat machine needs them to work. I'm not saying the Trump team is riding off Pennsylvania, but they're focused on Arizona, Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, and they're trying to find 70,000 voters in those four states that will vote for Donald Trump, that they can depend on to vote for Trump. And here's what extreme they've gone to. And this is the boring part. I mean, there's no way Trump would get in the middle of this, but it's important to him, and I think he's been convinced. Super chase precincts. You know what a super chase precinct is? That is a precinct where 200 or more of these 4.5 million are located. So if Dave Baker's a precinct manager, the Trump team assigns a super chase precinct representative to go to you and say, I want to get the voting rolls. I mean, that's public information. I want to know who in this precinct. And they've identified these precincts that have an excess of 200, in excess of 200 voters that, that they're targeting and it's it's four and a half million total. They're trying to get sixty or seventy thousand to come and vote. I mean, that's how laser and guys. There was none of this in twenty. Mm. I mean, it was cross your fingers, give a big speech at a football stadium, hope things go hunky dory, hope we stumble on a win tonight. That's not the way this team is operating. They've got a person that left Ron DeSantis's gubernatorial campaign because they just didn't think DeSantis had it in him to be a president. You were talking about how much more at home he seems as governor oh, yeah. of Florida. I mean, have you seen his but videos? But he's not being coached. Guys, there's a different animal running for president. Sure. I mean, it's it's a, it's an entirely different ball Well, game. the people that were handling his campaign and telling him what to do and running his social media, they uh, they messed up big time. Well, but he hired consultants that wanted to get paid but didn't understand. Trump hired people who now, and this is why I'm so encouraged. I mean, I read this. I mean, it was kind of a... um. I mean, it's an internal document, but it's been shared in some of the media. They've said some of these things publicly. The last thing you would expect of Donald Trump's campaign is to be unbelievably disciplined and organized. I mean, they make it up as they go. You know how that Trump crowd are, but they just kind of make it up as they go. They follow his lead. He gets out of a um, he gets out of that jet at a football stadium and turns into Ric Flair and those hayseeds and yahoos. You know how they are. I mean, that, that that's and, and his. I mean, that, that, there's a lot of credence to that. I mean, there's a lot of argument to be made that that's why Trump didn't win in 2020. They didn't take as seriously as the Obama machine that was working for uh, the Biden machine did in digging out and locating these voters. There's four and a half million 
low-propensity voters, white, non-college educated. They're trying to find 70,000 of them, and odds are they will. But if they've gone to the extreme of having these super precinct, super chase precinct representatives, that, that you've got 200 names, there's no way that one person can keep up with 4.5 million, right? I mean, you can't. There's a big data bank. But, but if Josh is assigned 200 people, and in the next nine months, Josh, hey, why, why aren't you voting? I mean, you identify as a Republican. You register as a Republican. You don't vote. Why? Well, I don't know, man. I'm fed up with the whole thing. I mean, you know, the Republican Party, interventions, globalist, blah, 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 blah. Trump came along. He's a little bit too damn crazy for me. I just, you know, I'm better off. No, nah, let's talk about that. And if they can get 60 or 70,000 of those in Arizona, Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, Trump wins. Wins, you ready? Overwhelmingly. I mean, he wins with a big number. Mm. Take a break. Back in a few. Ha-ha. Ha-ha. <laughs> Very funny. Very funny, Josh. Good job, Josh. With the old, um, is that, that's not, is that a bumper intro? What, what is that called? I mean, the boys yeah. got doing a... Yeah, we, we call it a, a rejoin liner. Okay, rejoin liner. Yeah, coming back from the break. Insulting rejoin yeah. um, liner. That's right. Yeah, just make them entertaining, interesting, and okay. You wouldn't insulting have it any sometimes. other way. Well, I mean, you're right. I mean, I I, I deserve sarcasm. I mean, if, <laughs> if, I, if I dish it out, I got to take it in, that, in that, return. And that is very true. All right, so what you're talking about is very interesting and encouraging to me. Okay. Because... It shows we, we know that we we believe we know what the other side is doing and has done to ensure that they get the votes that they need to win, right? Driving turnout via ballot harvesting. So if we're not playing that game and trying to play it better than they are, then we're going to lose every time. You, you, period. I mean, you can have the so best message, the best candidate. you got to have the apparatus. You've got to have, I mean, it comes down to math. It always does. I mean, the best candidate doesn't always win. They normally win, but the best candidate's usually smart enough to say, hey, where's the turnout machine? I mean, what percentage of Republicans? What percentage of independents? What percentage? I mean, it's math. It bores me to no end. I mean, I like the messaging, and I like the campaigning, and I like the debating, and I like the speaking, and I like the combative nature of politics. I mean, I got this bent gene. I mean, I kind of like the conflict. This guy thinks I'm a piece of feces, and I kind of think he is as well, and we kind of go at it. You know, it gets personal at times, and that's okay. Um, but but it's data. I mean, it's math. It's, it's you know, the one thing that I'd be so interested in, and if I could have five minutes of, of time with the people running Trump's analytical side of the campaign, I'd want to know what they believe Biden's ceiling legitimately is. I mean, I, I'd want to know that. We know that unsupervised mail-in ballots drove turnout. I mean, there's no doubt about it. We read... The meeting uh, minutes, Josh, you weren't here, but I, I went through the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and found the minutes of the Fulton County Election Commission when they accepted the grant, and that's when I told Red, we're screwed. I mean, they're just better at it. I mean, they're going to drive turnout. They realized the pandemic has created this very unique set of circumstances, and they're playing the game, and we're not. Because tr- remember Trump gave speeches when he said, there's going to be so much of this going on, you're not be able to keep up with it. He was right. But we weren't doing any of that. We weren't. We, we were trying to respect the, the, the lawful, orderly way of which elections are historically conducted. The Democrats said, hey, there really are no rules right now. I mean, some of the states are having legal challenges, and, and some of the people making decisions probably aren't qualified to make decisions. But let's take that as yes. And all of a sudden... 
You, you got, you know, Zucker. Now, now, obviously, none of this works if they don't have the money. People can be genuinely motivated, altruistic, patriotic. I want to do the right thing. The 200 or more registered uh, low propensity voters in these precincts are going to be monitored by a paid employee of the Trump campaign. You're not going to get performance without compensation. I mean, you'll get a certain degree. I mean, if, if, I, if Josh, if I said, Josh, don't you love America? Yeah. Aren't you a conservative? Yeah. Aren't you an America firster? Yeah. Josh, will you take this list of 200 names that we believe would vote for Trump? They just don't show up. We believe they're Republican aligned. They just are low propensity. They're low information. They don't care much about it. Josh, out of the goodness of your heart, will you take an afternoon a week, two afternoons a week, and go knock on the doors of these people? Yeah, I'll do it. And, and, and 4 o'clock in the afternoon gets there, and Josh is tired. And Josh says, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it the next day. But all of a sudden, Josh is a paid employee, and Josh is held accountable. Josh gets X number of dollars a week, and they hold Josh. Josh, I want to see that list. How many of these doors? How many guarantees do we have? How many yeses? How many maybes? How many do we need to go back and see again? You see where I'm headed? I mean, that $450 million that Zuckerberg had was the motivator. I mean, it was the catalyst to make people not act because they're patriotic or liberal or don't want Trump to be president. They were getting paid. It was their job to make sure those unsolicited mail-in ballots were turned in. And it seems to me that the people running Trump's campaign in 2024 are buying into that. We got we got whipped at that game in 20. We're not going to get whipped at that game in 2024. Um, here's kind of an interesting point. I told Rev during the break. I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. It's interesting to me that Trump is not depending on the RNC to do this. That's that's interesting mm-hmm. to me. Are they in concert? Are they working together? I don't know. Is this kind of an independent outside the RNC organization when it relates to vote? I don't know. Don't have any idea. Um, it's in conjunction with a couple of other names responsible for advocacy or something. I mean, they create these names. And I would imagine, I mean, I don't know what Peter Till's spending money on, but this sounds something like he'd be interested in. I mean, Till's got a lot of money. He's kind of shadowy. You know what I mean? He's over there somewhere. You know how that rich gay guy is. I mean, yeah, you got to keep your eye on him. Well, I mean, Till may be funding this. I don't know. Don't have any idea. He would be the kind of guy that would pay the bills to make sure. I mean, he would be, for a, for a better way, he'd be our Zuckerberg, you know, to say, okay, what are we trying to do? Well, I mean, Peter, we believe, we believe there's a lot of voters out there that are inclined to be supportive of Trump, but they just don't vote. Where are they? They're in these swing states. How do you know where they are? We found them. I mean, we've done all this data gathering. We just got to have manpower. We got to have people on the street. We got to be knock on doors. We got to build political infrastructure. How much? Uh, you know, $100 million. I'll do half. Go see Steve Wynn. He may do the other. You see where I'm headed. I mean, that's how those, those things work out. I'm just encouraged that Trump's team is taking voter turnout as serious as I believe they need to to win in 2024. Public sentiment is on his side. Donald Trump has led Joe Biden for 13 consecutive Gallup polls. You know the last time a Republican led a Democrat for 13 consecutive polls? In the Gallup presidential inquiry or query, I think is what they call it, um, George W. Bush in 2004. I think that would have been the Gore election. 04 would be Kerry. Kerry. That would be the Kerry. 08 was the hanging hang chad. Um, I think he led 
carry in 15 consecutive polls. And I'm talking about national polls. If Donald Trump is leading in the national poll, once again, I don't know what number. And I'd love to do a podcast or a radio interview with these two people who are running Trump's campaign. I'd love to know what they believe, what they're modeling Biden's ceiling as. Because we're not going to have 40% unsupervised mail-in ballots. I mean, are we going back to 10 or 12? I don't know. 15? I don't know. Don't have any idea where that number ends up. We believe the Georgia General Assembly has dealt with some of the issues. We believe um, uh, Ohio, but that's not really a swing state. Um, I did read in this report that they're projecting Trump to win Florida by nearly 2 million votes. They don't believe North Carolina's in play. That's interesting to me. I, I, I don't know if it is or not. They don't believe North Carolina's in play. They don't believe Virginia's in play. They believe North Carolina's a Trump state. They believe Virginia is a Biden state. I mean, they're making these calculus, and nobody gets everything right. But they're not spending a lot of time or money in Pennsylvania. That's so interesting to me. Arizona, Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan. That's where they're dedicating the majority of their resources, and they're trying to find 70,000 voters out of 4.5 million low propensity voters who they believe would be overwhelmingly in favor of the Republican candidate and the Trump presidency. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a few. See, Rev, every now and then, Josh, he doesn't mean to. I mean, maybe that's the um, <laughs> the genius of his genius. Right. We're talking about baseball and Moneyball and Brad Pitt and Billy Bean and the Oakland A's building a team around analytics. And it was not about – I mean, there's the, the, the old school – Scouts would say, David Justice is washed up, his bat slowed, and his knees are bad. And the analytics guy would say, he walked 112 times, scored 205 runs, got on base 70, you know what I mean, blah, 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 blah. And, and steroids, Red brought to the point how much steroids distorted reality in baseball. I mean, 56 was the, uh, excuse me, uh, 714. How many home runs did, um, I mean, the record was 61, Roger Maris. And, um, and all of a sudden, they're hitting 75. I mean, 78, Barry Bonds and Mark McGuire looked like linebackers, you know, playing baseball. I remember watching the Braves. I told Reb, uh, Brett Boone was kind of a smallish second baseman, and I'd watched baseball all my life, and Brett Boone hit one of the opposite field, 30 rows up at the bleachers, and I just said to myself, I went a long way. <laughs> you know what I mean? I went a long way. And then he came up like three innings later and hit one about three rows further than that. And I remember just thinking to myself, uh Nah, some some doesn't smell right here. I mean, something just that, that's a that's a a smallish second baseman hitting one of the opposite field thirty rows up into the uh, up into the stands. That's not Babe Ruth. That's not Hank Aaron. That's not Jose Canseco. I mean, that's a second baseman hitting a backside home run thirty rows into the bleachers. And as a baseball fan who played a lot of baseball, I'm going like, I don't know, man. Something doesn't make sense here. Well, steroids distorted reality in baseball. COVID distorted reality in politics. And I don't know what normal is. I mean, I, did Trump get 75 million without COVID? I mean, if we know Biden wouldn't have got 81 million without COVID. I don't know. Don't have any idea. So, so that's why I'm arguing or suggesting that the most interesting number that we don't know and probably never will. I mean, that would be an internal number. What number do they have Biden pegged at? I mean, they've got him. They've run the numbers. I mean, I can assure you with this, if they've done this, I mean, they've got a number assigned to Joe Biden on a rainy day in Pennsylvania, 
on a sunny day in Nevada. I mean, they've got turnout model after turnout model after turnout model. And that's the intriguing part of politics. I mean, you, you, you were the guy that worked on the cameras and uh, the technology and mm-hmm. the, the, uh, the, you know, I mean, you've, you've always said that about yourself. You would be, I mean, you would be so consumed by the science yeah. that goes on behind the scenes. I mean, the candidate walks out like a rock star. But there's somebody behind the scenes on a computer generating models that suggest turnout A, B, C, or D. And I would love to know what they believe Biden's best day is and what they believe Trump's best day is. And I'm not talking about a second baseman, a 180-pound second baseman hitting a home run of the opposite field 30 rows in the bleachers. I'm talking about a non-steroid era year of baseball, a non-COVID election cycle. What is Biden and Trump's? numbers per the analytics take a break back in a few eight four three six six one oh nine three seven is the number rev yeah you've heard uh, the advertisements that have been on the radio stations about the mark patrick seminars just wanted to remind you uh, the seminars are uh, today in florence and tomorrow in sumter if you're interested to find out about the lose weight or stop smoking seminars from mark patrick you can go to the website markpatrickseminars.com and sign up and register uh, today at the Staybridge Suites uh, near Florence Center in Florence and tomorrow at the True by Hilton in Sumter. Again, markpatrickseminars.com. Josh, let's go back to mine and your conversation yesterday. We never finished. We never even elaborated uh, much. Do you agree or not that Trump is a radical political figure? He is. Do you agree or not that his agenda, his platform, his issues – or fairly conservative mainstream. Yeah, they are. But I mean, his personality, put his personality aside, put his demeanor and his irreverence and his lack of discipline. I mean, that, you know, that makes him unique. And, and, and I don't want to say by definition, unique means radical, but in politics, it kind of does. I mean, if you're unique in politics, you're a little bit radical because that world doesn't embrace anything out of the norm. I mean, it, it basically does its best to get rid of anybody that, that acts a little bit out of the norm. So Trump is a radical political actor, but there's nothing real radical is about his agenda. I mean, he talks about China, talks about trade, talks about intervention. I mean, that, those are customary conservative issues. Republicans have an opinion. Democrats have an opinion. The only radical policy advancement has been Obamacare. I mean, someone texted me a second ago and said, well, explain that. I mean, if, if you're saying Obamacare, I'm not doubting you. But, but elaborate for a second. So here's why Obamacare was radical. In America, health care consumes about 20% of our GDP. It's twice what most developed nations spend on health care. Now, we can argue why. I believe that certain facets of health care have successfully lobbied government for a larger slice of the pie. Insurance companies aren't lobbying for lower insurance rates. Big Pharma's not lobbying for cheaper prescription drugs. I mean, they're just not. Um, that's just, and, and Big Pharma and healthcare, I mean, that's a big essential part of healthcare. Uh, insurance companies are a big part of healthcare. Well, I mean, hey, the, the insurance companies just figure out a way to charge you less for their health insurance. Let's rush to Washington, hire the best consultants, and convince them to pass legislation that allows us to charge cheap uh, for, for health. You see where I'm headed. I mean, so, so they've distorted they manipulated the market of health care, which is 20% of our GDP. Here's why health care is so radical in America today. There are two things that, that I think are essential 
to transforming healthcare to a more for affordable place. We don't reward people for being healthy. And we don't punish for people for being unhealthy. I mean, punish is not the right word. We don't penalize. That'd be a better way to say it. We don't reward people to go to the gym every day who never have an issue, who stay healthy, who take their medicines or don't take any medicines. They run, they walk, they eat well. Nobody gets rewarded in the Obamacare exchange for that. You know, the first question they ask you, it's not how healthy are you? How much money do you make? I mean, that's what they want to know from the get-go. Where are you and how much money do you make? That's radical. I mean, that's extremely, that's the most radical policy proposal in my lifetime. Here's what else they've done, Josh. They forced insurance companies to cover pre-existing conditions. That's not insurance. I mean, that's assuming a liability. It would be like Dave Baker needing a roof on his house. I mean, a, a, you know, a storm came through, tore his roof to smithereens. He calls the insurance agent the next morning and says, hey, I need to get, an in, uh, I need to get a, a price on insurance on the roof on my home. Insurance guy comes out and says, well, your, your, your roof's torn to pieces, man. I mean, I can't insure that. <laughs> yes, you can. I mean, it's a pre-existing condition. You're not insuring anything. You're assuming a liability. There's an expense with assuming a liability. So when they, when they allow or when they force the insurance companies to assume a liability, the insurance company has no choice but to make it up somewhere. I mean, Dave's got cancer. They know he's going to be expensive. I mean, he's going to be, I mean, they're going to lose money on Dave. They can't charge him enough in premium. So they got to charge somebody else. And that's radical. I don't think people really genuinely understand how radical Obamacare is. I don't think it's ever been explained to the average person. I mean, they know their health care is more expensive. They know the deductible is higher. Uh, they wonder whether they're getting as good a coverage as, as they did. Um, they question, you know, how much it costs to go to the hospital. Uh, who pays what? The insurance company's got a, a predetermined. I mean, they got, you know, the, these um, Medicare and Medicaid have these deals they cut with hospitals and they get a, a certain reimbursement. I mean, it's so confusing. But the radical part of Obamacare is when you go on the exchange, they don't say, Josh, how tall and how much do you weigh? They say, Josh, where do you live and how much you make? I mean, that, that is radical. That is unbelievably radical. They don't say, Josh, do you have cancer? Josh, do you have all these fiscal ailments? Because they've, they've, they've demanded, commanded via government edict of the insurance companies to not deny people coverage that have pre-existing conditions. And I think we can all agree that's not insurance. But that's assuming a costly liability. And when an insurance company is forced to assume a costly liability, they've got to find profit centers elsewhere. And those are the young, healthy people <laughs> who are paying far too much for insurance. It's radical. It, it would be like abolishing the IRS. I mean, conservatives want to abolish the IRS and replace it with a flat tax. The Obamacare legislation is as radical as abolishing the IRS if you're a conservative and have some sort of um, flat, fair economic transaction tax. And, and I think Americans just kind of whistle past Obamacare. Well, I mean, you know, I work for the government. I work for this big company. It's not really affecting me. Um, that much, but those of us out here eating what they kill, it's, I mean, it's dramatic. It is on, it's mind boggling what, what has happened to the insurance markets. If you don't work for the government, 
and you don't work for, you know, one of these big companies that have enormous buying or purchasing power. It needs to be undone. And, and, and I guess my, my grudge against John McCain is the thumbs down. Mm-hmm. I mean, I understand it. I get the personal animus those two men had one with another, but, 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 you know, McCain's legacy needs to be a service to country, but most of us remember him for walking out thumbs down and the Democrats <gasps> taken aback by him, you know, keeping Obamacare in place. Let's go to the vault. After he campaigned now on to, revealing now to pull it up He was by still its alive. Roots. I send it back to Vietnam. Yeah. I mean, let, you know, let's pull it up by its roots. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Hi, David. Yeah. Good morning, Colonel Baker. Uh, we got the Jose Kinseco or talk radio. You were, hey, Ken, you were on Newsmax yesterday? I think we were. That's yeah. what I was told. I just looked at the TV and talked. <laughs> Okay. Well, hey, man, do me a favor. Get on Maria's show or one of them afternoon Fox shows with these, these women. I might get distracted, anyway, David. Hey, I might get distracted that? if I get one of one of those um, news babes. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, man, we don't, we don't get you in trouble, man. But anyway, hey, try to do it, man. If you get, get, hey, better yet, get Maria in your studio. But, hey, you talk about these super chase precincts. If you understand this 235-plus math, uh, it makes perfect sense, man, because you, if you watched Joe Biden here recently, he was in, uh, what, uh, Michigan with that UAW. He's been to Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. He's been circled in wagons. So in other words, he don't want you to get those votes. And if you look at, if you know the math, Georgia's got 16 electoral votes. Arizona's got 11. Uh, now, the circle of wagon states, uh, Wisconsin's got 10. Michigan's got 15. Pennsylvania's got 19. So if you were to win uh, Georgia, Arizona, and Wisconsin, you've got it, okay? And I hate to say this. I don't know if I'd count on, like what you were saying, Pennsylvania. I don't know if I'd count on Michigan either. Uh, Wisconsin was tight uh, the last election. It was only about 20,000. But you got it then. But here's an interesting scenario. Let's say that you won Georgia, Arizona, and you won Nevada, uh, you would be at 268, and there's a district in Nebraska where Omaha is that Biden won. And imagine if some former fashion Trump flipped that one, it would be 269 to 269. And I don't know where it goes from. I think it goes to the House of Representatives. I don't know if it's the old house or the new house. So that gives a special meaning to uh, this election on all levels. So anyway, and plus, I was thinking this, too. I guess Nikki went to New York the last couple of days. I think she made she a fundraising swing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, I, mean, I kind of hope she stays there for a little while. But after, definitely after, if she doesn't do well in South Carolina, uh, and, and definitely after uh, Super Tuesday, I think that's March 5th. Anyway, y'all have a good day, my man. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. David threw a lot of numbers. He keeps up with those numbers kind of like I do. So the 235 number, Josh, is critical because the 2020 election didn't include the 2020 census. The 2020 census turned 232 into 235. So if Trump holds serve and wins exactly what he won in 2020, instead of having 232, he's got 235. I believe that Georgia is, I don't want to say safe, but I think it's safer than Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Nevada. I mean, I think Georgia 
leans Republican, and I think Georgia was heavily influenced, heavily influenced by Stacey Abrams and about $100 million. I mean, that, that's kind of the number that Stacey Abrams spent uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of $100 million in Georgia. Now, I don't have any idea how much she siphoned off. I mean, I would imagine big old Stacey got her share um, before <laughs> before she took care of um, of the, the, the van drivers and the bus drivers and the, you know, the walkers and the precinct hustlers and whatnot. I can't imagine Stacey not getting her cut before, you know, all the others got paid. That's just the nature of of the uh, of the beast. Here's the more optimistic point. And and stick with me for a second cuz I'm going to play a little down the road with you. It looks to me like that in 2030 when the next census comes out. We were talking with the um the guy from New Voices or New Republic whatever that uh guys you know talking about living in Raleigh and he's seen North Carolina change as well as South Carolina. You've had a mass mass migration shift from certain states into other and it's not really states. That's the misnomer. It's cities. They're not leaving New York. They're leaving New York City. They're not leaving Illinois. They're leaving Chicago. And I'm talking about in droves. I mean, just enormous amounts of people leaving. I'll give an example. If, if, if trends hold true. Now, COVID accelerated things. Because it got more expensive, and I don't know if you're a conservative-minded person, and your job's in Chicago, and the government says you got to do all these, and you can't do any of these. You, you like throw your hands up. Hey, is there another place we can live? Yeah, we can go to Florida. We can go to South Carolina. We can go somewhere else. That happened faster than it ever has. I mean, it's almost like settling the West. I mean, everybody left those big blue government, uh, Democrat-governed cities, and came to red states. I mean, the, the the evidence is undeniable. It's not everybody moving from a blue city to a red state, but it's 90%. Ohio may lose uh, electoral vote. I mean, Ohio's a Republican state, but it's got Cleveland and Cincinnati, and some of those people are leaving, just don't have enough opportunity. Deindustrialization. You know, they're, they're coming down south. They're moving places other than that. But if, if in 2020, Trump went from 20, 232 to 235, it looks to me like New York, California, and Illinois lose 10 electoral votes, and they all go to red states. I mean, there's going to be some red to blue. Um, Nevada voted against Trump. They're going to probably pick up an electoral vote. Arizona is going to probably pick up one. Um, But there's going to be a net gain of 10. So, guys, if 235 turns into 245, you put Georgia in the red column, you're at 261 takes 270 to win the presidency. I mean, you're talking about Florida being multiple millions of votes red. You're talking about Ohio being a million votes red. You're talking about Republicans winning Ohio, winning Florida, and not having to play a lot of defense. Now, North Carolina could be odd. I don't think Virginia is as purple as North Carolina is. I mean, I think I think Virginia's light blue. I don't think Virginia's a purple state anymore. I think Virginia's light blue. North Carolina's probably closer to purple than Virginia is. I think, you know, you know what I'm saying. I mean, Virginia's more likely to vote Democrat than North Carolina is to vote Republican. But it looks to me that North Carolina is going to be similar to South Carolina. It's not as red, but it's getting a little redder from some of these people leaving Illinois, New York. I, I doubt they're coming from California to South Carolina, but who knows? But, but guys, if you start talking about 
Because all I've heard since I got in politics was the demographic headwinds. I mean, the Republicans are stale, pale, and male. They're not resonating with young people. They're not resonating with minorities. I, some of that's true. Some of it is a little bit embellished. Um, African-Americans under the age of 35, 86% Democrats. African-Americans over the age of 35, 93 or 4% Democrat. What does that mean? I don't know. I don't have any idea. But African-Americans under the age of 35 are not as in bed with the Democrat Party as African-Americans over the I mean, if you get African-Americans above 60, I mean, it's 98%. I mean, that's that, you know, that, that alliance, that allegiance, that loyalty that one group of people have with a, with a political party. But, but that's in the macro. The Republican Party may struggle with, um, with minorities. It may struggle with suburban moms. It may struggle with certain demographics. But the population shift is going to give the Republicans a tremendous advantage. And there's enough data now to show that when people leave Ohio to come to South Carolina, leave Michigan to come to South Carolina, leave Wisconsin to come to South Carolina, they're leaving because they're fed up with big government, high taxes, and cold weather. I mean, it's not just weather. They're not just weather chasers. They're tired of high taxes. They're tired of government overreach. Uh, They're tired of Democrat cities. They just are. And that's going to be a tremendous, tremendous change um, because 2030 will be the first post-COVID census taken. And 232 is now 235. 235, I believe, in 2030 will be 245. 245 with Georgia is 261. I mean, it's it's going to be hard for a Democrat to win. It's going to be extremely hard for a Democrat to win. I mean, you're talking about Arizona, Georgia, Wisconsin. Excuse me, take Georgia off the board. Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, Nevada, Arizona. Well, I said Arizona. Pennsylvania. I mean, the Democrats have to run the table. I mean, they have to draw the inside straight. They got to win Arizona. They got to win Wisconsin. They got to win Michigan. They got to win Pennsylvania. If the, if the Republican gets to 261, I mean, they win Arizona. I don't think Nevada gets him in, but Arizona does. The, the, the other statistic that a lot of people aren't paying attention to, and I know we're behind, but stick with me. In the swing states, we're talking about African-Americans and Hispanic votes. In the swing states of Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, there's very little Hispanic effect. The Hispanic effect is in Texas, it's in Florida, it's in California, it's in Arizona, it's in Nevada, but in Michigan, in Wisconsin, in Georgia, the Hispanics voting one way or another, it's not insignificant, but it doesn't matter anywhere near as much as they're trying to make it um, at the national level. The Hispanics are embracing America first. That's undeniable. But there's not a lot of Hispanics voting in Michigan in Wisconsin, in Georgia. There will be a lot vote in Arizona and Nevada. Those two states matter when it comes to how the Hispanics vote. In the other, it does not. Man, I feel like I'm giving a um, <laughs> a campaign, uh, what about political science class yeah. <laughs> on the math? A lecture. Well, I mean, we're getting in the weeds, but I think <laughs> I'm explaining it. I'm explaining the best way I know how. If you understand it, good. If you don't, it's your fault. Take a break. Back in a few. It's time now for the Wake Up Carolina Winer Line, brought to you by Delta Building Systems. Call 803-720-5260. So, what are you whining about today? 
I think that if they nominate Michelle Obama to run for president, of course it's just going to be Barack Obama again that is pulling the strings. He is already the one that's pulling the strings in the Biden administration, following his own administration. Good grief. Some politicians are larger than life. The two most powerful political figures in America today are not in office. I mean, I say it about every day. Barack Obama is the most powerful Democrat on the planet Earth today. Donald Trump is the most powerful Republican on the planet today. Guess what they have in common? They're both former presidents. I mean, one's running for office, and he's a central figure in the next nine months. But Barack Obama is the puppet master of the Democrats. The only reason I watch CNN is David Axelrod's on there a lot, and I have convinced myself that Axelrod is the mouthpiece for Obama. And if Axelrod steers the conversation in a certain direction, that's where Obama, Inc. wants the conversation to be steered. Same with Trump. Joe Biden is a, he's kind of a puppet. He's a figurehead in the grand scheme of things. Oh, Clem, Clem, what is your issue today? Well, Mr. Government Man, Mr. Controllington, what you want ain't no secret. You want the laziest people you can round up so they can become dependent on you. It's that simple, Mr. Government Man, Mr. Controllington. Oh, Clem, Clem, what did you ever become so misguided? Was that Shakespeare? <laughs> did someone just quote <laughs> Shakespeare on Wake Up Carolina? I don't know what it was. I showed that to Rev, and he said he liked it, so you'll have to take it up with you him. You like that one, Rev? I, I don't know that I liked it. I just said, no, that's, that's creative. Playing defense now. It's different. <laughs> it's different. Um, okay. Um, I'll let Shakespeare <laughs> speak for themselves. That's right. I mean, <laughs> not much to say. Right, you, don't, you don't have to tell me about the government controlling. I mean, they've got the gold. He who has the gold rules, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Thick Pen's always argued that the world changed when the federal government acquired the ability to collect an income tax. I mean, <laughs> it's the golden rule. <laughs> he who has the gold rules, they've got all the gold, literally and figuratively, for the most part, and they kind of call the shots. Some of us don't much like the shots they're calling. You know, if you really want to go down the craziest road imaginable, there's some that ask where this ends up. I mean, the, the government gains its power from confiscating a certain percentage of your money. I mean, at the end of the day, that's kind of where the government gets its power. It garners its its influence. If it didn't have any money, people tell it to go to hell every day. But it's got a lot of money. It does a lot of things that we depend on. Do some things we like, some things we don't much like. But eventually, instead of dumping tea in the Boston Harbor, people will choose to keep their own money. I mean, I, that's where we're headed. I don't think I'll live long enough to see a revolt, a total and absolute tax revolt. But that's where, I mean, I think that's where we end up. On the other side of this revolution is going to be starving the government for the money it needs to have the power it has amassed. You were having a long conversation with your buddy Jeff. I think he referred to um, all of Trump supporters as the ignorant masses. He's just like Hillary, who called all of us what deplorables, elitists like him. Think they know everything, and all the rest of us are just stupid, and we're supposed to fall in line. You know, there's a 
If you believe that government is inefficient and ineffective, it's hard to blame the working man. And I'm talking about working women as well. I'll be please understand. I'm not excluding women uh, as part of that. We, we've done all I know to do to inform our listeners about who's running the government. And it's not graduates of Francis Marion. It's not, you know, college dropouts from towns with no stoplights. I mean, that's not the people that are pulling the levers of government. It's elites. It's establishment-oriented folks that have put a lot of checks in boxes, and they've behaved, and they've been polite in the polite class, and that's how you amass influence. They played the game better than anybody else. How many times do you think John Kirby's colored outside of the lines? I mean, for the government, he will. But as a private citizen, he's not doing that. If he's not going to get dinged up, what's the secretary blinking? I mean, those are Ivy League guys. I mean, they're buttoned up. They've done everything to prepare themselves for this opportunity. That's the problem in government today. Some of the elites and some of the liberals are blaming this Trump movement for all the confusion in America, all the, you know, the, the concerning uh, message of Donald. No. I mean, how do you blame those people for the situation the country finds itself in? Those people didn't call shots. I mean, those people don't make decisions. Those people live their lives at the mercy of, you know, the Ivy Leaguers and elites who do make these decisions and the narratives that are created by, uh, an, you know, an elite media. It, it, it goes back to these 13 or 14 universities that, that, you know, graduate these certain kinds of people and these certain kinds of people aspire to have control over the media and over the government, and they've succeeded. And that's why we talk about 50% of the administrative agencies and the American government are supervised by graduates of elite universities. So, so to suggest that the problem with America today is the deplorables won't listen, the hayseeds won't get in line, the hillbillies that vote for Trump, you know, are, are out of control. It doesn't matter if they're out of control. They don't run the government. Three young African-American native Georgians didn't die on the Jordanian-Syrian border because a college dropout from a town with no stoplight decided that's where they needed to be. Some elite from a prestigious university made a decision in concert with our government that that was essentially important. That was worth risking American lives. That's not Hayseed's fault. That's not Deplorable's fault. That's the smartest people in the universe and the masters of the universe. And that's the problem with the government. We've got too many people that don't relate and aren't relatable to the average, everyday, working American. You've been listening to the Wake Up Carolina Winer Line, brought to you by Delta Building Systems. You got something you want to whine about? Call anytime, 803-720-5260. It's the official and the original Wake Up Carolina Winer Line. Have you ever really listened, and I'm talking about listen, when Hillary made the deplorable comments? There's something most of you didn't hear that I did. She's in New York, and she's at one of these, you know, fancy schmancy fundraisers. And I don't know if she knew the camera was on, or I don't know if Hillary just tone deaf. I mean, she's not a real good politician anyway. I mean, he got all the talent in that family. I mean, Bill Slick, she's not. Um, but anyway, when Hillary says, well, you know, the Trump supporters are all basically a basket of deplorables, and nearly everybody in the audience audibly laughed. I mean, you can hear them in the in, 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 Listen, I mean, go, go back and listen to that. And in the background, you can hear him go, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, you know how those hillbillies are. They're, they're voting for Trump. I mean, how ignorant can those people really be? 
that there's an arrogance. I did a podcast with Dr. Fred Carter, and we discussed college presidencies and elite universities, and Carter basically, I mean, I don't think he'd mind me. I was on the podcast. I know he doesn't mind it, but he said it's not liberalism as much as it is arrogance. The arrogance of being out of touch, the arrogance of believing, because I think he talked about inauguration of college presidents. And Dr. Carter said, who do we think we are? I mean, we're inaugurating ourselves as college presidents. So when you and I say, well, it's about those damn liberals, one of those liberal universities like Yale and Harvard, Carter basically said, okay, I mean, I'll accept that the majority of those people are probably more liberal than I am, but it's arrogance. It's a belief that my intellectual and moral beliefs are superior to yours, and how dare you believe that your judgments and decisions deserve to be considered equally. That That's uh, just an unbelievable arrogance. Let's go to the phone, then we'll take a, then we'll take a break. Scott in Laurenburg, North Carolina. Hi, Scott. You're on. Good morning. How's everybody? Um, so, Ken, a question, and you probably answered this before, and if you have, I apologize. But let's say, hypothetically, Nikki continues with her campaign, and Trump, even though he gets enough votes to be the nominee, somehow or another is convicted and makes him unelectable, then why would any candidate, Nikki particularly, suspend their campaign? Let's look at DeSantis. Why not stay in the race in hopes that be able to do something at the convention? Help me understand that. Well, I mean, the, the, the main consideration, thank you for the call, Scott, appreciate it. The main consideration is money. I mean, it takes enormous amounts of money to pay people to run a campaign, to get candidate from point A to point B. You're talking about plane travel, and, and you're talking about hotel rooms. You're talking about, I don't think people who have ever, I mean, I did a, a, a much smaller campaign at a state of, at the time, four and a half million people. I mean, I can't imagine logistically what it cost to fund a presidential campaign. I mean, they just blow through millions of dollars like it's nothing. And I understand we'll symbolically stay on the ballot. It's going to be decided if Trump has legal trouble that excludes him from being a candidate, it's going to be a battle at the convention. I mean, that's where this will be won. If during the summer, before, and I'm talking about pre-convention, if pre-convention Trump gets in legal trouble that makes it illegal or, or excludes him from being a candidate for president, it's going to be a convention issue. And the problem with Nikki is we're at about 65, 35 America Firsters or establishment Republicans. DeSantis has a much better chance to win a convention, uh, overtaking a, of a convention than Nikki does. But when these candidates suspend campaigns, I mean, it's almost always about not having any money. I mean, I can't tell Dave Baker to support my campaign if I've got no chance to win. I mean, I can't let Josh get in the car and ride with me to Iowa, and then let's go to New Hampshire, and then South Carolina, and then let's let's roll the dice on Super Tuesday. Josh, I can't pay you, but I need you, man. I mean, you've been good to me, and you've stuck with me through thick and thin. I mean, it's money. That, that's why campaigns normally get suspended. Um, DeSantis ran out of money. I know somebody that worked for DeSantis. They, they basically said, we ran out of money about a week before. You know, we ran out of money. We ran on fumes for a week. Probably ran up some debt that they'll have to figure out a way to pay down the road. Take a break. Back in a few. I may have wore too heavy a hoodie today. <laughs> but you did wear a hoodie. I did wear a hoodie. <laughs> well, it's the versatile attire. I look at the weather in the morning. Thin hoodie, thick hoodie. 
but but understand and and I, and I said yesterday I'm in this studio five hours it doesn't matter what the temperature is outside it's hot in here I mean there's a lot of equipment a lot of lights rev I mean everything in here uh, makes it hotter a lot of hot air and um, so if it's 25 <laughs> degrees outside it's 150 in here so I dress kind of kind of in combination of what the outdoor temperature is and and what I know it'll be for five hours first thing in the morning but I think I Made a misjudgment today. I think the hoodie is too heavy. And you today. never know if you may need to pull that hood up over your head. Could. I mean, just in case. Could. If I need to hide from someone. <laughs> if I need to hide from someone, I will do that. And, and and I can't remember if you were wearing a hoodie when you did your interview on Newsmax yesterday because we did light up the cameras and it was a, a video television interview on national television. Um, what were you wearing? Do you remember? I don't remember. Yeah. I don't remember. It, it, listen, if it, you should have been wearing a hoodie for your debut nationally. <laughs> Right. Let's, let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Uh, Williams in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Hello, you're on. Hey, Ken, you, you haven't mentioned, mentioned the stock market. It's booming, man. It's booming. I'm setting records every day. You know that? You haven't mentioned that. I've been listening to your show for the last two weeks. You haven't mentioned that at all. I, I, know, I know that I can count on you. To call in and tell me the good things about him. I'm not going to tell anybody good things about Biden because I know you'll do it. I don't want to steal your thunder, Williams. Hey, hey, Miss Cower. He said Trump raped on TV six times. You know how much money she got out of, out of Trump? 83 five million. million the, five million the first time plus. 83 million second time. Mm-hmm. Almost 90 million dollars for the biggest rape of rapist in the world. Why haven't they charged him with rape, Williams? Would you take the 90 million dollars or put him in jail? Well, I mean, that's not what? the question. Well, that, that is the answer. No, the, but but I, I'm serious now. That's why why has he never been charged he, with he, rape? He, well, you think you paid 90 million dollars for? We're not raping them? No, it's defamation. I mean, he said the woman. That's part of it. That's part of it. (laughs) Have a good day. Thank you, Williams. (laughs) Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. I mean, I don't care if he's the leader of America First or not. I don't want a a convicted rapist running for president. Rapists go to jail. Yeah, I mean, sure. That's a crime. There's no question about it. I went back and read, uh, really and true to the USA Today article from... Ah, back in the summer, did a better job of kind of um, walking you through some of the legal, some of the legal stories about what he is and what's not, what's been reported, what's not been. I don't know why USA Today must have been having a bad day because they got the majority of it right. Trump was charged with defamation, and you know the lady's gonna take the money and buy Rachel Maddow penthouse with the uh, with the defamation mm-hmm. with the funds. She thinks now nah, so it'll be appealed and there'll be an appellate court. Speaking to the courts, I reached out to Patrick McLaughlin. During the break, Patrick's a local attorney here who has really, really covered and, and and understands the Murdoch saga and where we are. We thought it was done with. Uh, we thought that that, that that terrible tragedy was behind us. It's not the case. There's some inappropriate behavior. Well, let me say accusations of inappropriate behavior by a clerk. Um, Patrick will be here tomorrow at 8.05. Uh, he's a local lawyer here with the Wakila Law Firm, and he'll be with us tomorrow to um, I mean, he did, he's done it. He did a good job twice on the air. He'll do a great job tomorrow 
and explaining exactly what's happening, why there, why is there's this, why there's this new firestorm around the Murdoch trial when we thought everything had been settled with the conviction of Alec Murdoch uh, killing his wife and and kid. Let's go to the phone. Robert and Sherraw. Hi, you're on. Hey, uh, good morning. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say a quick point. Uh, I just heard the last caller, and uh, it just come to mind that trying to explain something to a liberal to make sense to them is like almost trying to make a, a rock start walking on its own. That's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Have Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, I mean, I respect someone who has liberal tendencies or a liberal bias. I mean, I do. I try not to be disrespectful. At times, I get a little bit aggravated when they insult I mean, that, that's when I feel like I got to defend my honor and yours uh, when someone calls in and, and basically says, you know, that, that conservatism is dumb and you folks are, you know, uh, you folks are just stupid to believe anything Trump says. I mean, I think you can have these debates without insulting and, and, and being personal about it. Um, I'd, I'd rather not have those conversations, but, uh, but I am perfectly, perfectly uh, fine with hearing from liberals about what they believe in and why they believe in that and um, and what they like to see government do or not do. I think those are most appropriate. But when someone insults, you know, what I call the Trump voter, I just feel like, I mean, I'm a Trump voter, so I'm insulted. And I feel like it's my job to not only defend my honor, but defend yours as well. Let's go to the phone. Karen in Florence, good morning. Yeah, um, I'm just calling. Um, I was a little bit uh, taken aback by a call made by this gentleman that just called saying Trump is a, a rapist um, two weeks ago, or about a couple of weeks ago. And do you know who Patrick Bet David is? Patrick has, David. Bet do, David. I do not. Do you know who I'm talking about? I do not. You do not. Okay, he has a podcast, and he's quite reputable. Um, and have you watched E. Jean Carroll on any videos of her, like from her past and like um, Anderson Cooper, a video with her with Anderson Cooper. Have you seen her at all? Yeah, I've seen a lot of her. She appears to be very unstable. I mean, like cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Um, and Patrick Bet David, I would refer your previous caller who wants to just call in and just just yell out rapist, rapist. I, I hope no one ever does that to him based on no, no, um, no facts. I would, I would just encourage him to go get the facts and bring us some facts as to why he called Trump a rapist in this case. And I would refer him to Patrick Bet David's um, podcast. There's one there that gives 15. We got to tell you, hey, not a break. End of the show. Thank you for the call. We'll talk tomorrow.